You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Greetings and welcome along to another episode of Attaboy Clarence. Do forgive the relative silence lately. I've been tending to all kinds of matters, including personal family tribulations and deadlines that all came at once. But I'm delighted to tell you that the show is back and about to become far more regular. Yes, way more old Hollywood splendor heading your way from now on. And to prove it, let's kick off today with a jaunty little number from Val Luton's favorite songstrel, Mr. Calypso himself, Sir Lancelot. Matilda, this one's for you. Matilda, 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 she takes me money and run Venezuela, everybody, Matilda, 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 Friends are lost. The woman even keep me cat and horse. Oh, lost. Matilda, she take me money and run Venezuela. Everybody, Matilda. My money was to buy a house on land. But the woman, she had a different plan. Oh, lost. Matilda, she take me money and run Venezuela. Everybody, Matilda. Oh, yeah. My money was underneath the bed, shook up in the mattress underneath my head. Oh, lost Matilda, she take me money and run Venezuela. Everybody, Matilda. Believe me, friends, I don't know what I've done. The zombie said, look, your money gone. Oh, lost. Matilda, she take me money and run Venezuela. Everybody, Matilda. Matilda. What did Matilda do? Matilda. Matilda, take me money and run Venezuela. Believe me, friends, I am losing my mind. The woman didn't leave me wanting dime. Oh, lost. Matilda, she take me money and run Venezuela. Everybody, Matilda. I don't know why the woman treat me so. Miss Lancelot, King of Calypso. Oh, lost Matilda, she take me money and run Venezuela. Everybody, Matilda. Oh, yo, yo, yo. That should get your toes a-tapping. 
That was Sir Lancelot with Matilda. Look, here is the new Band-Aid plastic strip with new super stick. It sticks better than any other Band-Aid. I'm going to need proof, sorry. The proof? Take a dry egg at room temperature. A dry egg? Touch the egg with any other bandage. Brand X, brand Y, brand Z. Not one sticks. Incredible, isn't it? You'd think sticking plaster manufacturers would all try the old dry egg test. And because they didn't, I now have three eggs all over my shoes. But a Band-Aid plastic strip with new super stick sticks tight instantly. No pressure, yet we can lift the egg, even boil it. And the Band-Aid plastic strip never comes loose. Honestly, wish I'd known this when I was a chef. I spent so many hours with my hand in a pan of boiling water. Maybe you don't want to broil eggs this way. <laughs> Speak for yourself. But you do want the extra protection of Band-Aid plastic strips. Even in hot, soapy dishwater. Neat, fresh-colored, almost invisible. Band-Aid plastic strips with new super stick stick better than any other bandage. Be sure you get Band-Aid plastic strips. Honestly, God bless the testing division of the Band-Aid factory. There they are, lifting up eggs, testing how invisible they turn when you put them in the dishwasher. Those guys are serious fans of the old mind-altering narcotics, I think. And now we come to the special feature of our program, the appearance of our mystery challenger for which the panel is always blindfolded. Blindfolds all in place, panel? Yes, sir. Will you enter mystery challenger and sign in, please? Well, how are your sleuthing skills these days? Rusty and dusty, you say? Well, never fear, just blow away the cobwebs and let's give them a whirl, shall we? Yes, it's time once more for a round of Guess That Voice, so sharpen your wits, listen for the clues, and see if you can tell who the hell is that Hollywood legend. We go to a different form of questioning, one question at a time, in turn, moving <laughs> clockwise, and we begin with um, Arlene Fenton. Well, obviously, you're dearly beloved now. What field you'll be? Are you in uh, motion pictures? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Sir? Uh, are you, are you a married lady? That's <laughs> 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 no, Miss Kilgallen. One down and nine to go. Uh... Do you now, or have you ever slept on lavender sheets? <laughs> That's no. Two down and eight to go, Mr. Jameson. Did you make a movie abroad this past summer? Who didn't? That's three down and seven to go, Miss Francis. I'm curious to know who Dorothy's... Kim Nova. 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 Kim <laughs> Miss Gilgallan? I'm terribly sorry. Uh, I've slept on lavender seats, darling. Thank you, Lord, for that bit of information. I'll keep it in mind. <laughs> Don't bother. <laughs> There's, been no call for... there. There's been no call for a conference. Let's get sorry. on with it. Uh, all right. Uh, are, would you be considered a romantic leading man? 
That's five dollars. Five to go, Mr. Gable. Are you a comedian? <laughs> that would indicate, Martin, sometimes our, our very talented guest is and sometimes does not act the part. Miss Francis? Do you sing and dance? Yes? Sometimes, yep, Mr. Sir. Do you sometimes play a musical instrument while you're singing before television or nightclub audience? You mean like play a tuba and sing at the same time, Bennett? No, <laughs> a guitar or one of those uh, stringed instruments? Hmm? Sometimes. Sometimes you, would you be the You couldn't be George Goble, could you? Well, that'll cost a no. That's six out of four to go, Miss Kilgallen. Are you Ray Bolger? That's seven, seven out of three to go, Mr. Gable. Uh, have you got a movie open on Broadway this cold winter night? Uh, 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 eight uh, 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 I do. Yeah, all right, we, we do. That's still seven out of three to go, Miss Francis. Uh, do you have a television show? That's eight out of two to go, oh, Mr. Sir. Oh, my goodness. Uh, what a way to start the new year. Yes. Uh, would you talk in your normal voice for a moment so we had a chance on New Year's Eve? That is his normal voice. I'm not. <laughs> you mean you won't? That's right. Uh, have you been in a, in a Broadway play this season? Nine out of one to go, Miss Kilgallen. I passed. <laughs> Could you be Anthony Francioso? That's ten dollars, no more to go. You may unmask panel and say hello and happy new year too. And we stop it there. Recognize the voice? Have the guesses gotten you there? Well, stay tuned and the answer will be revealed later in the show. First up, a sweet little family comic drama and pre-code to boot, although not too salacious, 1932's A Successful Calamity, which is quite the mouthful. This stars George Arliss, Mary Astor, Evelyn Knapp, Randolph Scott, and Grant Mitchell, and here's a clip. Well, according to this balance sheet, the house of Wilton and Company is in pretty good shape. I thought you'd be pleased. Pleased? Not at all, I'm annoyed. Annoyed? Certainly, most annoyed. A man who has founded a business has a right to feel that he can't possibly get along without him. Don't you think you might have shown a loss of 1%? <laughs> it's many a long year since we showed anything like a loss. Now let's talk about really important things. When did you see my family last? Yesterday. Did you? Well, how's my wife? Blooming. More beautiful than ever. That isn't true. She couldn't be. <laughs> you know, when I remarried six years ago, I was a good deal criticized for marrying a woman so much younger than myself. But I think I was a pretty good pick. And how those two great big grown-up children of mine. They tell me Peggy's the best contract player in Long Island. And Eddie's Polo King. Good heavens. All in one year? A uh, year's a long time when you're around 20. Terrible. The way one gets in clutches of business and can't get out. But now I am going to devote myself to my family. If you only knew how I long to be with them. Henry Wilton, played by Arliss, is one of those bankers who just can't seem to put a foot wrong when it comes to finance and investment. Over the years, he's amassed a gargantuan fortune, but it's come at the cost of losing touch with his family, who, it has to be said, have gotten a little bit spoiled. Where was the family? Uh, well, sir, you see, you were uh, a day early, and your message came too late for them to rearrange their plans. Mrs. Wilton had a most important musical. She said she'd explain everything to you. Oh, I see. 
Uh, Miss Peggy. Oh, Miss Peggy had an important engagement in town, but she'll be back this afternoon. Where's Mr. Eddy? Oh, Mr. Eddy's playing polo, sir. He said to explain to you and that you'd understand. Where's he playing? At North Lake, just nine miles away. He flew over in his new plane. What? Oh, yes, sir. Why, Mr. Eddy wouldn't think of going around the corner if he couldn't fly there. Huh. And Miss Peggy, does she fly around the corner, too? <laughs> no, sir. She drives. <laughs> that is, she did drive. Did? Doesn't she, doesn't she anymore? Well, uh... the judge took away her license. She said she was only going 15 miles an hour. <laughs> Let's drive over to North Lake and give Eddie a surprise. Yes. You have son Eddie, played by William Janney, who literally has his head in the clouds. He's in his plane every chance he gets, or he's riding around on the polo fields. Then you have daughter Peggy, played by Evelyn Knapp, who spends each day dreaming about being a famous actress. Finally, you have Emmy, played by Mary Astor, Henry's much younger wife and stepmother to the children. Not a day goes by when she isn't spending lavishly on entertaining her many society friends. The only one who seemed grounded in the entire house is Henry's faithful manservant, Connors, played by the great Grant Mitchell. In fact, it's Connors himself who makes a chance remark that gives Henry something to think about. No, Connors, I should have liked to stay at home tonight. With Mrs. Wilton, you know, and the children. Wonder how people arrange with their families to do it. You any idea? How was it with you, your father and mother? They... Well, well, sir, of course, for the poor, it's a very simple matter. They've no money to spend. So, you see, sir, the poor don't get to go very often. So they stay at home more or less together. Henry decides to pretend that he's financially ruined in the hopes that his family will find out that there's far more to happiness than money. But will his rather spoiled family react in the way that he wants? And how many times can you hear the word ruined before it starts to become rather hilarious? Can you bear a shock? A severe shock? What is it, Harry? Emmy, I'm ruined. Ruined? But I can't believe it. Ruined. Oh, but mightn't there be some mistake? How did it happen? It's so sudden, That's Harry. That's how these things do happen. Ruined. I ought never to have left my business. Ruined. Oh, don't keep on saying it, Emmy. I can't bear it. And we've been such an expensive family. Oh, no, no. It's all my doing. Oh, ruined. Does anybody know? Um, uh, not yet. Hello, Darby and Joan. Well, Daddy, what do you think of your grown-up daughter? How do you like this new rap? Your father's very worried. But what are you two so serious about? Peggy. Your father's ruined, Peggy. Ruined? There, there, Peggy. I'll still try to buy you pretty clothes. I'm going to telephone George Struthers and tell him I'll marry him. Wait a minute. Wait a lifetime. I'm not going to have that dope as a brother-in-law. You mind your own business, Eddie Wilton. If you knew what I know... <laughs> Why, I've forgotten more than you ever knew or ever will know. Well, we're ruined, Smarty. What's the joke? Your father's ruined, Eddie. I grant you that the concept of this film may well come across as the trials and tribulations of the ultra-rich, but before you turn up your noses in disgust, it's worth saying that this is a remarkably sweet little movie and preaches a very good line in the fallacy of putting your faith in finance. Rather wonderfully, the story does a very neat thing with its final 15 minutes. It produces a very fine sting in the tail, one that the more seasoned movie fan may see coming, but then it pulls the rug out from beneath you once again. I won't go into any detail because it really does elevate the whole thing from an already sweet story into something that lingers. Now, you don't often see this level of 
opulence in a Warner programmer from the early 30s. They seem to have been far too occupied with life on the streets to bother so much with life in the heavens, so it's a bit of an oddity all round. It reminded me very much of The Little Giant with Edward G. Robinson in terms of tone, genuinely funny and heartfelt, but with those Warner scuffs on its shoes. It was a total surprise to me, and I wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much as I did. So glad I unearthed it, though it's a little gem. That's 1932's A Successful Calamity. Terrible title, wonderful film. Definitely check it out. Everybody needs energy-packed sunbeam bread. I've been saying this for years. Yes, it's all aboard for fun in the park. But Junior hasn't got energy enough for fun. He'd sure like to ride that horse. Hey, what's this? An energy-packed sunbeam sandwich. Okay, what the hell is happening right now? You bet every delicious slice of sunbeam bread sure does pack a big energy wallop. There's nothing like sunbeam energy to help you stay on the beam. Now, look at them go. On sunbeam energy, they sure do enjoy life. Everybody needs the kind of real zip and zing pep that delicious sunbeam bread gives you. Does anyone else get the feeling that the Band-Aid testing division might have spilled a little something into the sunbeam bread mixer? All day long, eat sunbeam bread and renew energy as you burn it up. Eat delicious sunbeam bread. Yeah, pretty sure this guy's eaten the whole loaf. So I'm sat here with my good friend Scott, who any podcaster will know from such hits as the Talking Pictures TV podcast, Stinking Paws, Real Britannia, and of course, the Rainbow Valley show. Hello, Scott. How are you, mate? I'm absolutely fine. We were just saying (laughs) off air, this has taken 10 years. 10 years? It's nearly 10 years we've been friends and... For some reason, I mean, you've contributed to my podcast in the past. You've chipped in with some know, MP3s yeah. and things like that. It's just you haven't bothered. <laughs> that's all it was. <laughs> I haven't bothered paying back the favour. No, I've, I've had the invite, <laughs> if truth be told, mate. But yes, it's an absolute <laughs> pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Scott, do you want to tell people about your various shows? Because... Oh. I think there are, when it comes to podcasters who get around, <laughs> a rat of a drain pipe, you are basically the podcaster who does more than any other podcaster I know. Yeah, one of my fellow co-hosts referred to me as the Steve Wright of the podcasting world once, and I, I don't think that's a compliment. I'm not too sure. Um, regular listeners to Adam's shows will know that there's a, a select group of us that all became friends exactly the same time because we all started podcasting at the same time. It started off for me with the Stinking Paws. That's the OG for you, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, for people that don't know, Stinking Paws comes from Planet of the Apes. Get your Stinking Paws off me, you filthy ape. But it's spelt P-A-U-S-E. And we just we just loved mm-hmm. that play on words, you know. And it was just a bit of fun between me and Charlie. I was working with Charlie at the time. Found out he was a great movie fan, but he was ooh, probably about 20 years younger than me. So really, he's seventy-five. Is he? He is now. Bless him. <laughs> <laughs> he passed. He passed the Belgrew line many years ago. Um, <laughs> we'll explain that to your listeners later. What that actually is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Belgrew line. <laughs> um, Think about Brazilian waxes. <laughs> <laughs> <Go on. laughs> 
but because Charlie was on this discovery of trying to work out what a good movie was, you know, he, he had a great taste. You know, he loved The Godfather and he loved Tarantino and things mm. like that. It became a sort of educating Charlie podcast as well. We'd sort of take it in turns to choose a movie for each other. And we've been doing that for 10 years and Charlie fell off the radar for a little while and he's back with us now and I've got Paul with me. And for me, it's it's the fun podcast. It's the social podcast for me where my mates get together we have a drink and we review a movie and we just have a real giggle but it's going to keep going from strength to strength because we're all enjoying it next came the rainbow valley which partly inspired by secret history of hollywood and it was a fact that it was something i always wanted to do was a documentary style podcast and i wanted to do something that wasn't specifically movie related and i've got this great fascination and this great love for everything from the 1960s I was See, born- the 1960s are literally the hinge upon which the 20th century sits, aren't they? It's I was incredible. It's post-war, it's where everyone sort of let go. All those babies that were born in 1946, just creeping past that teenage years in 1960, 61, mm. they're starting their own families, they're in their early 20s. You get the huge controversy over Lady Chatley in 1960, which opens up the floodgates for the sexual revolution and the permissive age. Elvis had been swinging his pelvis a couple of years before, and then, bang, the Beatles come along in 1963. The whole thing just blows up. And it's a big just, cauldron, isn't it? Yeah, and it just explodes. And, and it's not just the music, it's the news events. When you think Woodstock, Kennedy, the moon landings, the Cold War, the Bay of Pigs, Profumo, all of that sort of stuff... And I cover that in the podcast, uh, the Great Train Robbery, Dusty Springfield, you know, mm. and I and I try and do the the news events, the hits, the headlines, because it's always fascinated me. But then there is the odd making of specific movies, one from each year. So the last episode was 1964, the making of Zulu, um, which bit of a passion project, one of my favourite movies, and I took a real deep dive into how Stanley Baker. And Michael Caine got together with Cy Enfield and, and created one of the you know the most famous British movies of all time. It very nearly didn't happen if you listen to the documentary about all the problems that were going on. So that is sort of every two months now. I'm back on track with that because I had a bit of a break over COVID. I just couldn't get into the swing of scripting that. Mm. Um, and now we're back on track. I've written the next five episodes, so we're going to go right through to the summer at least. And there'll be more written as we go along. I want to quickly say uh, Rainbow Valley is a superb achievement in podcasting. Like you say, if you like Secret History of Hollywood kind of storytelling, Mm. that kind of deep dives but branches off. And it's like if you didn't live in the 60s but you've been fascinated by where pop culture comes from. There's pre-war, post-war, and then all of a sudden there's this explosion of, God, where did it even come from? And the 1960s are (laughs) just such an epoch-moving, culturally-defining period, and you do a massively great job of explaining why that happens. The the fascinating thing is it does actually just grind to a halt in 1969, and there is this definitive 60s, Mm. 70s, Division. If you look at 1969, which was one of the busiest years in the whole of the 1960s, you know, Woodstock was in August. By the December, three months later, the Rolling Stones hit Altamont for their open air free concert after Brian Jones has died. And there's a death there with the Hells Angels of the security. And as I mentioned in the show when I did the Altamont episode, Woodstock sort of celebrated the birth and the love and the joy of the hippies and all that. Like, and it came down in the blackest day in music history in December 1969, and the 60s just died, absolutely died there. Um, and even the music changed, literally changed overnight because the Beatles 
were just grinding to a halt. The Beatles were only, you know, record producing. 62 to 70. Yeah, Yeah. 77 years, eight years or something. You Mm, know, people forget that, you know, it was only that eight year window. But yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. So um, I also try to take a little bit of a different spin because if I tried to tell the story of the JFK assassination, I could be there for months, you know, trying to pick through all the conspiracy theories and did this happen, did that happen. So what I did, I picked a particular aspect of it, which was the Zapruder film. The twenty six seconds of color footage that yeah, Abraham's approved. Fantastic of. episode. Yeah, a lot of research went into that. I'm lucky there's quite a few decent books out there. That, I mean, you're the same, aren't mm. you? Try and grab every book you can when you're doing your research yeah. and 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 cherry pick the best bits and put your own spin on things. It's it was the story of a man who was a nobody uh, whose life was all right. He he find you know financially benefited incredibly from that bit of film. But it also ruined his life. Absolutely ruined his life. So yeah, take a slightly different spin on things. And, and finally, sorry, this is taking far too long. Um, no, not at all. I, I particularly wanted to do a movie podcast specifically on British movies, so I started Real Britannia, mm. not to be confused with the Britbox documentary that's out there at the moment with the same title. It's belt and same, isn't it? Exactly the same. And, oh. um, Are you um, going to sue? No, 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 no. People have picked up on it. We we just share a hashtag on Twitter, basically. <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to do British movies, and you love your British movies, I know that for a fact, but for the general public, you say, right, just name us, you know, famous British movies. They'll, they'll name a carry-on movie, or a war movie, or a kitchen sink drama, possibly, or... The Volmonte, you know, bend it like Beckham or something like that. And there is so much more when you when you yeah. take a real look into even going back to the early Hitchcocks, you know, pre Hollywood in the thirties. Mm. There's some great stuff there, and you work your way through, and you get your George Formbys and your Will Hayes, but then you get your stiff upper lip wartime dramas with John Mills and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, there's some there's such good noir from the, like the Soho noirs and there's horrors and yeah, oh God, it's just absolutely so rich, isn't it? You get this wonderful little period in the fifties just before the kitchen sink stuff, which is the social problem mm. movie. Again, it's round about that time of the teenagers, you know, and and it's your police procedurals like the Blue Lamp and Gideon's mm. Day and the Long Arm and all that sort of stuff, and then Teenage Rebellion, you know. It's all, all the British answer to Black Ball Jungle, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. And it's just fascinating the way that evolved into the kitchen sink stuff. And then, you know, you get the evolution of the carry-ons into the saucy 70s confessions movies. And then even mm. the 80s, Film 4 and all that um, Channel 4 produced stuff, as well as the um, handmade productions, you know, all those Great films from that 10-year period. Even up to today, I mean, we reviewed Legend, the Craze movie. It's one of the most recent mm. films we've done. And do you know what? It fits in there as well. It's part of British movie mm. history. You know, it all works. We've got no time constraints on our movie, we, we, on our you know choices of reviews. We'll quite happily review a, a silent British classic right up to anything that's released this year. The best thing that came out of it is my co-host Stephen. He puts in this, what I call a Herculean effort every week to collate the Hall of Fame. But we're village not. The Hall of Fame. The Village Hall of Fame, because we're not worthy enough to have a Hall of Fame. We're just, you know, two, two, two podcasters <laughs> on a Sunday morning. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> so we, we've got the Village Hall of you Fame. You definitely are. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I set Stephen this task of making a note of the 
every star of every movie, every cast member of every movie we review. Now, bearing in mind, we're on about 140 movies at the moment. Mm. Yeah, and, that's a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> and if they appear... I'm always impressed by how well he keeps up with this thing. He's got this spreadsheet that I can't fathom out. <laughs> I, I daren't go near it. So if if they appear three times, you know, three different movies, mm. they get inducted into the Village Hall of Fame. Mm. So right from the beginning, we thought, oh, it's going to be John Mills. It'll be Laurence Olivier. It'll be Albert Finney, you know, Michael Caine. Mm. It took months for any of those to even appear. And it's... It's the backroom characters, exactly. the background it's like, characters. It's the Sam Kids and the Roland Culvers and things like that, isn't it? Marianne, yeah, those, Marianne, Marianne Stone is up there at number mm. two at the moment. She's the most prolific British actress. She's got over 200 credited appearances on IMDb. You've got Victor Harrington, mm. who's 14 times in 140 movies or something like that. And, and <laughs> you wouldn't even know him. There's very rarely a picture of him on IMDb. is like this blurry photo of this man in the background. Um, but mm. we can spot him now. We can spot him a mile off. It's incredible. Guy Stand even, 13 appearances. And it just fascinates us. And 90% of everybody that's appeared in the Hall of Fame appeared in the Titanic movie, A Night to Remember. Every, wow. Everybody was in that <laughs> film. <laughs> Is Kenneth Moore in the Village Hall of Fame? He only got inducted not so long ago. Um, really? Okay. Yeah, we did 39 Steps, Admirable Crichton, and something else. And actually, we're doing Genevieve in a couple of weeks' time as well, which is one oh, of my favourites. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I can wholeheartedly tell you that um, Scott shows The Stinking Paws with you, mm-hmm. uh, the Talking Pictures TV podcast, of which you are a third of the uh, the team and um real britannia which i have to say is among my must listens of all Bless time you. shows yeah. and has been for quite a while and of course rainbow valley if you aren't subscribed to those already then you're doing yourself a disservice scott is the og of podcasting and <laughs> continues to pump out such quality especially if you like old movies but with the british slant then you will particularly like real britannia and when you were talking about your thesis towards the show and mm. how you know you're exploring the the side of british cinema that perhaps old movie lovers don't particularly think of britain when it comes to old films yeah. uh, old films and old cinema it's like british cinema of that period from the 20s to even to now mm. i like the counterculture version of hollywood that was going on because they had yeah. the code going on they couldn't really do much in terms of shocking value but Britain was still doing it and they were still taking in all the people that were getting slaughtered by HUAC at the time and exactly make films because they were blacklisted and suddenly we had all this talent coming over making these films that had no production code to them so yep exploring that whole world of cinema is almost like seeing Hollywood in its counterculture days so you've got to remember Peeping Tom was released the same year as Psycho you know it's, mm. it's one and of the things in many want. ways like a harsher version of Psycho exactly <laughs> we reviewed a... it recently and it's <laughs> one of the things we say it's just it's hard to believe that that's a fact but also yeah you could see that both of those movies mm. came out the same time you know and it's uh, almost like that stuff was bubbling under the surface of both realms of cinema you had Hollywood dying to explode and you had British cinema dying to explode and Hitchcock and, and Powell just went bosh so <laughs> and what, what happens Hitchcock decides to push the envelope by showing a flushing toilet Powell shows a breast mm. you know it's, it's incredible the two differences <laughs> in the movie <laughs> yeah. interesting as well that they were, it was both Englishmen that decided to to burst the bubble if yeah you will. well it, it, it ruined Powell's career you know he ended up making movies mm. for the Children's Film Foundation after that that was it yes 
Um, well, today I asked Scott to come onto the show to talk about any film he would like from the golden age of cinema. He instantly suggested Frank Capra. Yeah. And um, in particular, I said, well, which Frank Capra film would you like to talk about? And, I mean, do you want to introduce this one, Scott? Well, if it was top of my list, it would have been the obvious choice, which is your favourite movie and my favourite movie of all time, which is It's a Wonderful Life. Mm. And there's no way we can talk about that. I mean, you've spoke about it to death. I've done various shows on it. What more can be said about the greatest movie ever made? It's kind of unreviewable now, isn't it? Yeah. You've either seen it and have your own opinion, or you haven't seen it, but you've been told about it so many times. It's one of those films that just sits outside of being Mm. reviewable. Exactly, exactly. It's like trying to trying to judge one of your, your children, you know, which, what's, what's your favourite child, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I went through the list. I thought, oh, I could do another Jimmy Stewart. We could do Mr Smith, you know. We could do Meet John mm-hmm. Doe. We could do any of those great Capra movies. And I thought, no, do you know what? If I had to pick what was second on my Capra list, and it's a bit divisive, this one, because some people think that it's a bit over the top. It's a bit too screwball. But I would have to say it's probably the film I've seen as many times as Wonderful Life, and it's Arsenic and Old Lace with Cary Grant. Oh, Harrod, don't be a jerk. You don't seem to realise I'm turning over to you the nicest, the best beat in Brooklyn. Now, look at that old church and them old houses. Did George Washington ever do any sleeping around here? Of course he did. Why, this whole neighbourhood just stinks with atmosphere. Now, look at that old house there. Yeah, the original owner's still living there? Now, don't crack wise about the Brewster sisters. They're two of the dearest, sweetest, kindest old ladies that ever walked the earth. They're out of this world. They're like, uh, they're like pressed rose leaves. Pressed rose leaves? Hey, the old girls must be kind of hard up, huh? I know. Their old man left them fixed for life. And don't you call them the girls, uh, either. Brophy's lieutenant around. If they're so well-heeled, what are they renting rooms for? They don't rent rooms, but you can bet if anybody came around looking for a room, they wouldn't go away without a good meal and probably a couple of bucks in their pocket. That's just their way of digging up people to do good to. Now, this is a very interesting choice, especially for me, because I have a very tortured relationship with this film. <laughs> this is one of the... <laughs> when I first started getting into old films, I was about 18 years old, Yep. and It's a Wonderful Life was one of the first three films mm-hmm. that I obtained and I was like I want to try and find out about film history and I watched yeah. that film and I was like wow who is Frank Capra I need yep. to know more about him and I think Arsenic and Old Lace was a term I'd heard a film I'd heard of and I thought well it's Frank Capra it's you know a film I've heard of and I've heard of this guy Cary Grant so I racked that one up afterwards and I couldn't have been more appalled <laughs> <laughs> because it wasn't what you was expecting. Because seen... it wasn't, yeah. I wanted more Capricorn. You know, that's what they call his genre. You yeah. know, I wanted more, you know, feels, as it were. Mm. And then all of a sudden there was this scruple thing. And I kind of realised when I first saw that film, at that point in my life, that I don't like farce. <laughs> I don't like scruple when it's that madcap. Yeah. Kind of thing. So, for a long time I've written this film off as, uh, and yeah, it's too out there for me. I mean, it's not this mm. farce and I'm not a fan of farce and everything yeah anyway about six months ago put this film up for the vote for my sunday night film club yes. patreon and it got a, like a wild number of votes <laughs> above any other i think it was i think it was a capra vote as well mm. so we put it on on sunday night and it was packed this room i think there were like 80 people in there or something mm. and we were watching this film 
everyone was just screaming. They were like, you know, oh, this bit's amazing. Oh, this is, oh my God, it's the best film I've ever seen. And watching it with a crowd made yep. me totally reappreciate this film. <laughs> I've seen it probably three times since that night. Wow. And um, I think it's a masterpiece now. What's your relationship with Arsenic and Old Lace? Same as you. I started my Hollywood journey a little bit younger than you. I was about 11 or 12. You won't remember, but there was this wonderful period in the early 80s when the embargo was lifted on the five Hitchcock movies that had not been seen yes. since the 60s. Yeah, absolutely. I do remember that. Yeah. yeah, and it was the early days of Channel 4, so there was this wonderful opportunity for these old movies to be screened again, and I'd watched the five Hitchcocks that, you know, it was Vertigo, The Birds, a couple of others. I can't remember what they were. Marnie, I think, was another one. And I thought, I like this, I like this. And it also tied in with Woolworths introducing the video collection range. Okay, (laughs) the first... I love these. Yeah, honestly, this is how old I am, right? So the first high street chain to sell sell through video at $4.99. And the first two movies I bought was American Werewolf in London and North by Northwest. And those gorgeous video spines that you yeah. used to get with the, with the title down and a small picture from the thing and the, the, the certificate. Yeah. And the, yeah oh, God. <laughs> There's nothing like it. <laughs> and it, it set me on a journey of, of video collecting and taping stuff off mm-hmm. the TV. And at school, I'd, I'd scan the Radio Times to see what the matinee movie would be on Channel 4 and make sure that I recorded it. And, and I knew right from that early period that Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart and Gregory Peck were the three favourite actors and they still have mm-hmm. been, you know, they still remain so. And I probably saw this, I was about 14 or 15, I think. And like you, I was aware of Capra, obviously, because of It's a Wonderful Life. And I'd seen, even like You Can't Take It With You, I'd seen because it had been on Sunday afternoon on BBC Two or something, and I recorded it, you know. And I just thought, do you know what? Cary Grant that I knew in North by Northwest is not just a handsome leading man of action, he can mug it up with the best of them and pull the most... Mugging amazing. is the word. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it was just non-stop entertainment. There was, there's not a dry part in this movie at all. And, and I watched mm. it again last night, and I was a bit wary because I hadn't seen it for about two years. And I'd been looking through a few reviews, and, and people were saying, oh, it gets a bit wearisome in the second half, and... and, and Cary mm. Grant just gets a bit annoying. And I'm thinking, do I remember it being like that? So I watched it last night. I forgot it was two hours long as well. You know, it's quite a long movie mm. for the time. And I just enjoyed every single minute of it. And I, and I knew bits of it and I'd forgotten parts of it. And and my argument as well for this, this is probably why I've watched it quite so often. You know, every year you get this huge debate as to whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not. Mm-hmm. Just because it's set on Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. I will die on this hill by stating <laughs> Arsenic and Old Lace is a Halloween movie. because it, it's, I can totally see that. Right? Yeah, that's it's set, it's that's set, not a problem at yeah, all. It's set on Halloween, right? So that's the same argument mm. as the diehard fans would give. And mm-hmm. what I like to do at Halloween or Halloween weekend, I do a horror movie marathon every year. But you have to start off with something a little bit light. You know, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein or something like that, or carry on screaming, you know, just to ease you mm, in before it gets to mid. To, yeah, just to get the tones in there. Yeah, and <laughs> this is one that I very often start my Halloween with because it's just it's just perfect Halloween entertainment. It's, it's not horror, mm. but it's a Halloween movie as well, yeah. Have you ever seen any other versions of this? There's a 1962 TV version with Karloff, isn't mm. there? 
It's on YouTube. It? No, it's on YouTube, and mm. I, yeah, I don't know whether I want to. Um, um, well, obviously, this is based on a play, and Karloff played Jonathan Brewster in yeah. the play, but he, he famously couldn't get out of the contract to go and appear in the film, which was filmed in early 40s, but yeah. wasn't released till later. But um, So you have uh, Raymond Massey playing his part in this mm. film, but he returned in in the sixties to play his part again in the, the TV show. I remember we, on Film Club, everyone was so friended and so happy and so, oh my god, this is just the best night we've ever had, kind of thing. <laughs> Watching Arsenic and Old Lace, you can't you can't even describe how happy people were. Yeah. So I was like, look, the sixties TV version is on YouTube. Should we watch this afterwards? And everyone was like, yeah, give us more, kind of thing. <laughs> And I've never seen a room go so flat, so flat. quickly. <laughs> Within about five minutes, I think everyone was just like, Ugh. and then you just saw the names dropping out. One by one. <laughs> what have you done? Yeah, it, it was terribly flat. <laughs> Coincidentally, when Jimmy Stewart did Harvey, 1950 or whatever mm. it was, he, he reprised the role for TV, I think, in the late 60s, early 70s. But because he was that little bit more, a little bit older, still revered you know it's still got a really warm reception um, mm. as a complete opposite to the reaction that you would have got there because it's, it's Jimmy Stewart at the end of the day and mm. El- Elmer P. Dowd is one of his most famous creations you know um, and it's yeah. a, a role that only he he could have played you know whereas Raymond Massey does a fantastic job of playing Karloff he does here. a great job mm. in this yeah but he totally he knows he's playing Karloff you know, he doesn't yeah. try and make it his own, which is the perfect thing. But I think the the, the problem with the TV version of this mm. is that it's so flat and drab. I think you really needed a master like Capra at the helm, you know, to give it a bit of flair. You needed zooms in on Cary Grant's face, you know, when he got the <laughs> gag in his mouth. And you needed the gooniness of it all. But I just yeah. think it's, it's, it falls so flat. You need energy. I think that probably back in the 40s, you'd have so much energy going on on the stage with you know Karloff coming in and then, yeah. you know everyone would get a friss on and <gasps> it's Karloff you know and then you'd have <laughs> Gene and Josephine running around the stage and but I think that was totally recreated for this film it's a real masterpiece of physical comedy from Cary Grant which is, who's obviously the standout when it comes to energy I would say in this film John Alexander as Teddy is amazing I mean, he's all over the place as well is yeah. amazing I mean I think this is probably the most animated that Cary Grant ever was in a movie. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. And because it is pure slapstick, it is pure screwball farce. It's 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 almost like, you know, bedroom farce to another degree, you know. And the supporting cast is absolutely perfect, especially when you think you've got Peter Laurie as an incidental mm. character almost. And Jack Carson as the cop. Jack Carson is so good in this. Hams it up <laughs> as much as Cary Grant. He's on a level pegging with Cary Grant for overplaying it. And I read a criticism, as I said, when I was reading some of the reviews earlier. One particular reviewer said, oh, it's embarrassing because Cary Grant and Jack Carson are really mugging this up, whereas those sort of more venerable stage actors are, are playing it a little bit more seriously. And I'm thinking, Raymond Massey is not playing this serious. Peter Laurie's tongue mm. is firmly in his cheek here in the whole movie mm. you know um mm-hmm. so i just ignored any criticism of this and i'm just going with my own thoughts and feelings on it interesting you said that the tv production was a bit stagey as well because as you said this is an adaptation of a stage movie uh, of, a, of a stage production what i found out as well which i'd never realized before yes you get the odd scene at the marriage bureau you get 
the scenes out in the graveyard and a couple of other bits and pieces. But it is firmly set within that living room and showing the staircase and the kitchen as if it were a, mm. a stage. It, yeah. was, it was the most expensive stage set ever built at the time at Walner's because wow. what they did, not only the kitchen, they built Teddy's bedroom, they built the cellar and some other <laughs> rooms as well, and they filmed scenes set in those rooms, but they were never they didn't show them. never showed them. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. It reminds you of like the Eric von Stroheim films of the mm. 20s where he built entire towns but would only film one room. One room, you know, exactly. Or had, yeah. or, or had plants imported from <laughs> Switzerland to plant along the lanes but then would only film that lane over there. It's, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, but they, they filmed in every single room and they cut. So I don't know if, you know, whether they refilmed it in, in, the, in the living room, those scenes, or whether, you know, those scenes have just lost forever now, you know, an extra part of the script, which would have been incredible to see if that's the case. I'd love to see an uncut version of this film, maybe, and yeah, have um, those pieces put back in. S- skipping to the end, they had to cut one of the lines at the very end as well. The censors yeah. jumped on it, which is um, <laughs> the famous thing. I'm, a, was it, I'm, I'm, the, I'm not a Brewster, I'm the son of a sea cook. Uh, yeah. The original he, line was... The, the original line was... <laughs> I'm not a Brewster, I'm a bastard, basically. <laughs> <laughs> as you can imagine, would have given an uproarious kind of cheer yeah. <laughs> in theatres. Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> there's, there's lots of little things like that that I was reading about today because I'd never really gone into the background of this. I've just enjoyed the movie for what it for what it is and what I've enjoyed over the last like watching it for the last 30 years or so because there's a danger that when you peek behind the curtain like the Wizard of Oz and you see what you know the magic has come from the luster comes off for me to I, I try to avoid making of documentaries and things like that now because it really spoils it for me mm. I don't I don't need to know why I enjoy a movie I just know I enjoy it you know and Abby and Martha come in here no you come in here now Yes, dear, what is it? Where's Elaine? Wait a minute. Didn't you promise me not to let anyone in the house while I was gone? Well, Jonathan just walked in. I don't mean Jonathan. And Dr. And I don't mean Dr. Einstein. Who is that in the window seat? We told you, Mr. Hoskins. It is not Mr. Hoskins. There. Who can that be? I think that's um, all of the appeal for me on this film because when I was first becoming educated in mm. older cinema, I wasn't looking for frivolity. And I think um, Arsenic and Old Lace is one of those films that it's just there purely to entertain. But actually, when you look at it as well, it's a clear forerunner of things like The Addams Family and Beetlejuice. It has that sinister edge. A little bit gothic. Kind of yeah. Subversive. Yeah, mm. it's like it's, it's a farce, it's a screwball comedy, but there are <laughs> real murders happening. <laughs> and although it was made sort of 10 years after Philadelphia story I I would suggest mm. this is a good gateway to somebody trying to investigate classic Hollywood and screwball type comedies oh yeah watch this and then you get the more sophisticated things like Philadelphia story or even go back mm. and watch you can't take it with you because that's very screwball and that's a lot earlier as well being a Capra and then go to it happened one night you know I, I think those three together are not Capricorn they are mm. Capra screwball type movies, you know, whereas your Mr. Deed, your Mr. Smith and all that sort of stuff are the are the true what they call Capricorn movies. And again, let me just mention, because when you asked what I wanted to watch and, and review with you, I mentioned Ball of Fire, mm. which in my mind is a Capra movie, but it's Howard Hawks. It is so yeah. Capra-esque, that movie. And, and Easily I, mistakable for yeah. a Capra film. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. A big, great film, great oh, film. Love Ball of Fire. It's like, yeah. it's like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It is. With I mean, a screwball edge. 
version always said it is a version of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and and look at the supporting mm. cast in that as well. You know, it's Gary Gary God. Cooper and and uh, Barbara Stanwyck, but then you look at the guys playing the professors. It's Julius mm. What's his face from Casablanca, and all those guys—they're all famous faces from that era. You know, mm. yeah. What I love about old cinema is that. Age was never a never a factor in getting hired. It was how how well you fit the role and what your face looked like, <laughs> you know. And this is, I think, I think this this film in particular, Arsenic and Old Lace, is all about making sure that the right people were in the right roles. And, mm-hmm. and while they couldn't have Karloff, Raymond Massey is a wonderful avatar for Karloff yeah. in this film. Cary Grant's perfect. I mean, he's not the first person you'd think of when it comes to let's have someone sit on a chair with a gag in his mouth yeah. mugging at the camera you wouldn't think of an affair to remember as Cary Grant <laughs> but there he is Cary, winning the role Cary Grant himself said Jimmy Stewart would have been better in the role it's very interesting because mm. I can see Jimmy Stewart yeah. totally playing this yeah. perfectly as well first choice was Bob Hope see that would have worked that would have worked yeah. and then and then second <laughs> yeah. choice Ronald Reagan mm. which wouldn't have worked I mean, <laughs> It's a reach, but I can kind of see it. Yeah, and, and it was only because um, he was released from his Columbia contract, or wherever he was working for at the time, that they got him. And you saying mm. about age being a perfect sort of factor in in deciding what cast members are what. Martha Brewster, Gina Dare, only started acting 10 years earlier, 1933, and she was 60. That was her first role. This is only her second movie at the age of, like, 68 or something like that. I can't I can't remember how old she was. Josephine Hull, who plays Abby, is the little dumpy one that dances about. Martha's the mm. more trim, sort of like prim one. Um she was she was 60 when she started acting in 1932 or something like that. That's kind of true. She mm. was uh, she was a vaudevillian. For this is sorry, many, movie many acting. Years. Yeah, movie acting. Yeah, movie acting, yeah. yeah. Mm. Do you know that actually on the set of this film? She went up to Cary Grant and said, how are you doing, Archie? He was like, I don't... Yeah, I'm fine. How are you? How mm. did you know my name? And she mm. said, do you remember when you were 12 years old and you were in Rochester, New York? Mm. And he said, yeah. <laughs> and she said, do you remember when you came down with um this illness and you couldn't go on with your troupe, your, your acrobatic troupe? <laughs> she was like, he was like, yes. I said, do you remember me? Because I nursed you to health over three weeks. And he was like, what? There we go. Incredible story. Yeah. yeah. It's a really amazing story because he wouldn't leave her side through the whole making of this film. Excellent. I've oh, always that's, tried to find you. That's and, um, amazing. You know, yeah. And, Wonderful and, lady. Another story is that, um, as you mentioned, it took three years from the film being actually mm. made to it being released because it wasn't allowed to be released because of the... The stage production wasn't it? It couldn't be released while the That's stage. Right, yeah, there were the rights. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- three of the cu- three of the cast members actually died before the movie was released. <laughs> Which three? Um, the, the Irish cop. Uh, oh, Edward McNamara. Yeah, Edward McNamara. He's the worst actor of all yeah, time. He, he, he died. Um, <laughs> the clerk in the. Uh, marriage, like the certificate registration right, yeah, yeah, place, he yeah. died, and one of the mm-hmm. incidental characters as well. Uh, I think it was the guy, <laughs> you know, oh, there's a really famous face who plays the reporter, Charles Lane. Um, yes, Charles Lane, yeah. Yeah, it yep. was uh, Ed, Edward McWade, the guy that was with him at the beginning. Yeah. He he passed away, yeah, he passed away as well, because so, <laughs> it took so long for the film to come out. Ch- Charles Lane, he's one of those faces. Total Capra, yeah, and I'm. Hound. I was so many old films, yeah, yeah, but he kept on acting right through to his eighties, right in the. He was he, he appeared in like episodes of Magnum and things like that, and Chips, 
playing like I love that playing judges, <laughs> right? I was watching mm. last year. I binge watched. Do you remember the US comedy soap? Uh, vaguely, vaguely, yeah. yeah. It was it was on mm. late nights on Channel Four, and LWT had it for a while. And I was watching, I'd binge watching, I got through to the fourth season, there was only four seasons made, and he appears as a judge in it. And I'm thinking, that's Charles Lane, oh my God, he's still alive. And then I'm sure I saw him in an episode of Golden Girls as well, something like that. He was still acting right up until he died at 102. Incredible. I love I love characterizers like that, yeah. especially people like Raymond Huntley in in England and Raymond you know, just, Huntley. Just the faces you see and get it again, and it almost doesn't matter how bad the film is. You just feel like you know a familiar face has welcomed you in. It doesn't matter how bad the film is. That's just come it. on in. I'm here. It's Don't a, worry about it. It's, it's just a little <laughs> bit of a yeah. That'll do. That's fine. I'll, I'll forgive the rest of yeah. the movie. Yes. Raymond Huntley's here. Charles Lane's here. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'll enjoy it. It can't be that bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the same with. Um, Edward Everett Horton's in this as well, you know. And- exactly. Oh, ex- I forgot he was in this. Can you believe that? And there he is, king of the double take. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the first thing I ever saw him in was Top Hat. And again, that was in the early days of me discovering Hollywood. You know, I'm thinking, okay, I've got to watch a Fred Astaire. So I picked that one being the most famous mm. one. A love affair with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers ever since, you know. But he was part of it, you know. He was, he was part of that supporting cast that made mm. this era and the 30s particularly special. You know, when you start looking out for famous faces amongst the cast, or even like the Epstein brothers who scripted this, were the scriptwriters mm. on Casablanca when you go in, you know, and it's all amazing stuff when you when you mm. dig into the history and the background of these movies, yeah. Isn't it strange as well that all these people we see and recognise and love and remember... The mm. Gina Dares, the mm. Charles Lanes, the Edward Everett Hortons. None of them are young people. Yeah. They're always that avuncular kind of... Like you say, we were talking about Ball of Fire. Mm. And all of the professors in that, the S. Caesar Carls and the Richard Hydens, they're yeah. all older people. And it's such a shame that older people aren't used more. Do we have like... Do we have a stable we, of people these yeah. days that appear in films? Because the equivalent of, say, that age in their 70s, you're, you're talking Harrison mm. Ford now, you know, he's in his 70s, yeah. and he's playing <laughs> Indiana Jones again next year, for God's sake, you know. So it's, it, 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 it's strange that, yeah, we had proper... And they didn't even need to say anything. You just looked at them and you felt comfortable, mm. like you're saying. It's like, oh, there's exactly. Edward Everett They're like a, seeing those people. It was like putting on a scarf. Yeah. It's like seeing Gene Hackman, you know, in the yeah. 80s and 90s and stuff. It's yeah. like, it doesn't matter what you're doing here, <laughs> if it's a supporting play or whether you're going to be the villain. I just yeah. love that you're here. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yes. Anyway. <laughs> so Arsenic and Old Lace, Scott, what mm. do you think? As a, as a film experience on the whole, what do you think? Well, as I say, I've, I've lost count the number of times I've seen it. And for somebody going into it for the first time, I'd I'd, I'd highly recommend, you know, they, they, they need to be aware of what they're, they're letting themselves in for to a certain degree because it can be a bit over the top. It's, as it's you madcap, say, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, and, and as you say, if you're as expecting something along the lines of uh, a Frank Capra, it's a wonderful life type movie, you are definitely not going to mm. get that. It's great fun. I mean, it's a, it's a movie for the whole family. Kids could watch this with no problem whatsoever. You've got nothing offensive mm. in here. And, and for me, as I say, I thought the shine might have come off of it a little now because there is a real danger with that now. I'm, I'm, I'm going back to some of my old favourites and I'm thinking... 
I've watched this too many times. I need to give this a bit of a rest. You know, I don't watch Wonderful Life every Christmas now as, as much because I don't enjoy it. And I, I leave it two years and then I watch it again. And it's like, thank you. That's that's the movie I loved and adored. You know? yeah, yeah. But with this, as I say, I hadn't seen it for a couple of years and I wasn't expecting it to be a brilliant watching experience. But I was totally enthralled with it. I thought I'd get distracted. I thought I'd pick up my phone, you know, or, you know, try and look at some IMDB notes or something while I was watching it. I just mm. sat and watched it and it was absolutely fantastic. It stood the test of time, absolutely. You could put this on, not necessarily on a Saturday night at prime time, but if, if you were to pop that on, on, on say, BBC Two on a, on a Saturday afternoon, like they used to show the matinee performances, there'd still mm. be people reacting on Twitter. There'd be a hashtag, Arsenic and Old Lace, on yeah. Twitter going, you know, is, is anybody watching it? Like you said, the reaction you got at the film club is is mm. a prime example of how this has stood the test of time. I mean, was it first-time watches amongst the audience there for most of the your guys? Or there were it... lots of people there watching it for the first time, yeah. yeah. I, I must say, I wasn't, I wasn't. it was one of those film club experiences I was thinking, oh, God, I've got to sit through Arsenic. Yeah, but actually the energy of the room was convincing me actually this is actually a really fun film and Mm. everyone in it is having a great time it's very well directed it's really well written and it's really subversive as well for the time you've got like a 1940s film about old ladies murdering old men (laughs) (laughs) you've got a murdering psychopath older brother it's like really this is kind of Adam's Family slash Monsters for the 40s it's a really fun film and I, I watched it again this afternoon before we, we had our chat mm. and I was really struck by the, the style of it as well the whole Capra is really firing on all cylinders at the beginning especially with the captions which are kind of tongue in cheek and that, going for the audience as well meanwhile it's back in the fun. real America or something yeah. it says after the baseball <laughs> game and then mm-hmm. after the, the marriage bit they go to the shot of the you're on your own now the caption says the, yeah okay, the, you're, the on the cemetery, you're on your own now and if you look it didn't like, need to be there but but it just it draws you in. You're like, okay, this film is my pal. Exactly. Yeah. Whatever it's, is that? There's a bit of intrigue there as you're thinking, okay, where's this going? You know, because it starts mm. off like a typical Cary Grant movie. Absolutely. This could have been I was a male yeah. war bride or anything like that. It's just Cary Grant, leading lady, little bit of comedy going on. Within mm. ten minutes, all right, you get introduced to the sisters, and you know that you know, she's skipping about. It's all a little bit dotty and all that sort of stuff. But the minute he sits down on the bench and looks in the bench... And lifts the lid. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) This is an interesting thing, because I looked at the time when that happened, right? I I remember, and I've been trying to think of this for years, there was a documentary or something I saw, it might have been on Barry Norman or something, there was a little sort of like section on there, a segment, where somebody had worked out that in 90-something percent of all movies, when you get to the Mm. 19, 20-minute mark... That's when the most important thing happens in the movie or the the turning point. And I always look out for it, right? And it's amazing mm. how many times it happened. The second he lifts up that lid is 19 minutes, 30 seconds. Wow. Look out for this. It, it, it doesn't matter how long the film is, whether it's a 90-minute movie or a two-hour movie. Round about somewhere between, say, 18 and 21 minutes, something mm. will happen that will be the crux of the whole movie. It's incredible, it, 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 and they showed examples of it, and, and I was trying to work it. They worked it out to an exact time. But, yeah, once you're 20 minutes in, you then get another one hour, 40 minutes of it's non-stop. It absolutely mm. doesn't take a breath. Even when Massey turns up with Laurie and, 
you know, it starts getting a bit darker then as well, you know. And there's even the competition as to who's killed the most people, you know. They're arguing who's, <laughs> you know, don't don't forget there was the number thirty. No, I'm counting. No, Johnny, yeah, yeah. he didn't die. <laughs> Took him it's two so hours dumb. or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is the darkest of dark comedies. Well, this is a fine how do you do. It's getting so anybody thinks he can walk in this house. Now, you look here, Aunt Abby. Don't you try to get out of this. That's another one of your gentlemen, and you know it. Mortimer, how can you say such a thing? That man's an imposter. And if he came here to be buried in our cellar, he's mistaken. You admitted to me that you put Mr. Hoskins in the window seat. Yes, I did. Well, this man couldn't have just got the idea from Mr. Hoskins. Oh, no. By the way, where is Mr. Hoskins? He must have gone to Panama. What, you buried him? No, no, not yet. He's just down there waiting for the services, poor dear. Oh. We haven't had a minute, what with Jonathan in the house. Jonathan? Oh, oh dear. <laughs> We've always wanted to hold a double funeral. You shouldn't be laughing Beautiful, at it. If you, was, if you was to take this seriously, <laughs> you should not be laughing at this. At all. And, and yeah. the constant threat of drinking the the wine it's always there and are they going to yeah. get it are they going to touch it you know and it's like oh and then when you want them to drink the wine Cary Grant's tied up bandage round his mouth Jack Carson comes in doesn't release you know and it's like it gets frustrated you know when comedies get frustratingly like just do it just yeah. and, 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 oh, just do like, it just yeah. don't do it yeah. <laughs> I was actually yeah. like edge of the seat come on just even though I knew what was happening <laughs> It's so well constructed, isn't it? It's yeah, work. yeah, and beautiful. You know, the genius of that must be down to the original Scrum stage production, because mm, I'm assuming yeah. there's very minor adaptations, you know, to this. Um, yeah, there's there's a wonderful scene that again was cut at the very end, uh, but there was a publicity still taken of it. The movie doesn't finish with. Cary Grant saying, I'm I'm a son of a sea cooker. It then would have cut to Everett Edward Horton being given a glass of wine by the sisters at the very end. <laughs> because there's a bit of it, don't tell them you're lonely. Don't tell them you're lonely, for God's sake. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and, and Jack Carson in this, as say, again, hamming it up as much as Cary Grant. What happened to him? Nothing. He was explaining a play he saw the other night and... That's what happened to a man in the play. Oh, I see. Did that really happen at a play you saw? <laughs> How do you like that? You can't trust nobody no more. They practically stole that from the second act of my play. You know, in the second act, just before... Well, maybe I better start at the beginning. Huh? Oh, yeah, sure. No. You've got to hear the plot. <laughs> And it wasn't for a while until, again, started watching old movies. When you realise he's in Mildred Pierce, playing mm. a completely different Jack character. Carson, exactly. Yeah. And mm. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And you think, well, that's the same guy that was in Mildred Pierce. And it's like two totally different characters. But then again, it's no different to Cary Grant in this and Cary Grant in In a Lonely Place. Is it In a Lonely Place? What's the or thing? Raymond Massey in this and Raymond Massey in A Matter of Life and Death. Exactly. It's, yeah. yeah. Just, I mean, actors were actors in those days. Yeah. They walked into a job and said, what do you need me to be today? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, amazing. But then I think Josephine Hull always played Josephine Hull in every movie. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. She was not versatile at all. <laughs> she was this guy, this girl and Harvey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was that. <laughs> well, Scott, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you about Arsenic and Old Lace. Uh, if people want to find you, where should they go? The easiest way, I mean, we used to rattle out all the 
Twitter links and all that lot. We're everywhere you download your podcasts. So Real Britannia, Stinking Paws, Talking Pictures TV podcast and Rainbow Valley. Scott, thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you for reintroducing Arsenic and Old Race <laughs> to a new audience. Absolute <laughs> pleasure, my friend. I'll see you very soon. That was the wonderful Deanna Durbin with Because. You know, if you were to follow a busy doctor as he makes his daily round of calls, you'd find yourself having a mighty busy time keeping up with him. Not if you make your sandwiches with sunbeam bread. Time out for many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette. Ah, yes, the mark of a man in good health. And because they know what a pleasure it is to smoke a mild, good-tasting cigarette, they're particular about the brand they choose. In a repeated national survey, doctors in all branches of medicine, doctors in all parts of the country were asked, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? Yes. <coughs> doctor, please tell me <coughs> how on earth I can be as <coughs> healthy and as fragrant as you. Once again, the brand named most was Camel. Yes, according to this repeated nationwide survey, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Why not change to camels for the next 30 days and see what a difference it makes in your smoking enjoyment? Yes, try camels for 30 days. They guarantee not to start killing you until day 31. Hi, kids. 
Nike are really missing a trick not using a theme song. Hi, kids. Hi, kids. Say, why do you kids wear kids? So I can run faster and jump farther. So I can win more often. Oh, me? Well, well, to be honest, I found these in a skit. Always look for the label big and blue. Kids, kids, kids. That spells out U.S. kids for you. Kids, kids, kids. Those shock arches sure are neat. The right support for growing feet. That skip also contains some meat. Kids, kids, kids. Product of United States rubber. <laughs> Wonderful diversion into early Warners again, this time with High Nelly, starring Paul Muni, Glenda Farrell, Donald Meek and Ned Sparks, plus a sea of those faces you love to love, including Edward Ellis, Hobart Kavanagh, Robert Barrett, Burton Churchill, basically the names might be unfamiliar, but if you're an old movie lover, then you'll know the faces instantly. We're in that time-honoured setting for many Warner Capers, a newspaper office, and the managing editor is Brad, played by Paul Muni. He's as hard as they come, but he's always playing fair. That's why he's reluctant to go with the gossip when a prominent banker named Canfield vanishes along with a huge chunk of the bank's money. That tip's on the level. Canfield's gone. How do you know? His bank's just closed. A half a million bucks short. Sammy just phoned in. The central labor? (laughs) Boy, oh boy. Can you imagine the stink that's going to raise? The head of the governor's investigating committee takes a powder with a hard-earned dough with a poor working class? And did they pin it on Canfield? Why, sure. It's simple. No dough, no Canfield. Just like putting two and two together. And adding them up to a million. I'm holding for a replay. I laid out an eight-column spread. Canfield disappearance closed the Central Labor Bank. Kill it. Listen, Dawes, don't ever let me catch you putting anything like that in this paper. But, Brad... You haven't a bit of proof that Canfield took one cent in that bank and you're all ready to crucify him as a thief. I'm not saying he took the money. No, you're just sneaking around corner shop. But every paper in town will play it that I'm way. only interested in this paper and you play it my way. The rags in town all proclaim that Canfield must have absconded with the money. But Brad thinks there might be more to it. Plant the bank closing in a double column and don't play it too hard. That's all and nothing else, eh? But, Brad, you're throwing away the biggest... This story. time running this clam bag. Get that. Send me all the copy before it goes through. And remember, if there's one word hinting that Campbell took a penny from that bank, you better start a run. Okay, you're the doctor. The newspaper's owner, Mr. Graham, played by Burton Churchill, is furious at being the only paper who isn't running with the embezzlement story. And he busts Brad down from managing editor to the job that no one at the paper wants. The Lonely Hearts column written by their fictional agony aunt, Nellie Nelson. It's where careers go to die. And having her career slowly choked to death in the Nelly column is ace reporter Jerry, played by Glenda Farrell. Give me a spot on the sport page. Anything but that. It's that or nothing. Take it or leave. Yes? Oh, send her right in. Now listen, J.L., you... Good morning. Good morning, Miss Crail. Good morning. Miss Crail, I've decided to put you back on the city staff. You wouldn't fool a poor girl, would you? Oh, no, I'm serious. You will report to Mr. Dawes for your assignments. Dawes? Yes. Mr. Dawes is now managing editor. Mr. Bradshaw has kindly consented to take over the editorship of Heartthrobs. Bradshaw? 
Heartthrobs? <laughs> oh, that's what. Jerry is promoted out of the Nelly column, and her ex-boss Brad is forced to spend his days writing flowery advice to New York's lovelorn. But then suddenly, a certain lonely heart's request seems to cross over with the scandal of the missing banker. And Brad finds himself with an opportunity to report his way out of Nellie's armchair and back into his editor's office. 530 West Houston Street. 530 West Houston Street. That's funny. Marinello. Canfield. So where'd you get this? Yeah, where'd I get it? That's the address Canfield phoned his wife for the day he disappeared. This really does fly along at a clip. It's one of those delightfully breathless Warner skirmishes with lightning dialogue and non-stop action. The intrigues come thick and fast, but crucially, so does the comedy. It's rare you see a great thespian like Paul Muni, who I've always considered to be the De Niro of his day, given such light fare as this, but he is startlingly good. It helps that he's aided and abetted by Warner's other great gal Friday, Glenda Farrell, who can always match her male co-stars when it comes to sass and presence. This would have passed me by completely if my friends Jack and Christy hadn't recommended it to me last week, and I'm so glad they did. If you like your murder mystery comedies fast and funny, intriguing and beautifully played, then look no further than 1934's High Nelly. It's a real whiz-banger. And if you're a patron, then High Nelly, Arsenic and Old Lace, and A Successful Calamity are in the Classic Movie Library right now. And if you aren't a patron yet, then go to patreon.com slash attaboysecret and sign up now. Radio today, then. And seeing as how we've gone all week at the knees over Arsenic and Old Lace, let's keep the Cary Grant love going, shall we? Not only was Cary one of the most debonair comedians the cinema has ever seen, he was also one of the finest dramatic actors. And those two polar opposites were never more in evidence than on radio. I've picked two prime examples of his talents, a comedy and a thriller. For the Screen Guild Theatre, it's a very star-studded affair as Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn and James Stewart reprise their roles in the Philadelphia story. What a treat. Then we are stepping into the shadows as Cary Grant stars in The Black Curtain, a taut thriller written by Rear Window author Cornell Woolrich. A double bill of Cary Grant's then. Light and dark, laughs and chills. But brilliance all the way. See you afterwards. Good evening. Tonight, Lady Esther takes exceptional pride in presenting the Screen Guild players and Philip Berry's delightful modern classic, The Philadelphia Story. It stars the three brilliant players who made the story so memorable on the screen. Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, and Jimmy Stewart. The Lady Esther Screen Guild players in The Philadelphia Story. Tracy Lord's first marriage to C.K. Dexter Haven was dissolved by a vigorous right to the jaw. And now Tracy is about to be married again the season's most important event to mainline society in Philadelphia, 
and streamline journalism in New York. Which brings us to the office of Mr. Kidd, owner and editor of Spy Magazine. Miss Imbry, you'll take your camera, of course. Uh, Connor, you'll take your own special talents. Where? Yeah, what's the deal? Your assignment will be Spy's most sensational achievement, Tracy Lord. Tracy Big Lord. game hunting in Africa, fox hunting in Pennsylvania, married on impulse and divorced in rage, and always unapproachable by the press. The unapproachable Miss Lord. I don't care if you the think The Philadelphia that I story. Closed with the portals of snobbish fox hunting, uh... No, 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 wait. No Hunter of Foxes is Spy Magazine. Nevertheless, presented for the first time, quote, a wedding day inside mainline society. Or what the kitchen maid saw through the keyhole, unquote. Huh? You're the writer, Connor. I'm only the publisher. All right, publisher, take this. Quote, no hunter of buckshot on the rear is KG Crafty Connor, unquote. Close paragraph. Close job, close bank account. Look, Mr. Kidd, how could we even get inside the estate, let alone into the house? Oh, it's been arranged. Miss Wallace? Yes, sir? Send him in, please. Now, Liz, now, wait a minute. We won't do it. It's degrading, demeaning, undignified. So is an empty stomach. Now, just relax. We'll have to... Hello. Who are you? Connor, this gentleman has been employed in our Buenos Aires office. I believe he can help us. How? Tracy Lord's brother, Junius, is in the American embassy down there, and an old friend of this gentleman... He'll introduce you to the family as an intimate friend of Junius. Dear old Junius, hmm? Oh, does Tracy Lord know this guy? Oh, yes. Yes, you might say Tracy and I grew up together. You might also say you're C.K. Dexter Haven, and you were Tracy Lord's first husband. Yes, you might. Holy mucka, what goes on here? Oh, I remember that honeymoon very well, Mr. Dexter Haven. You and she in a little sailboat. The true love, wasn't it? That's right. How did you know? I was the one photographer whose camera you didn't smash. You were terribly nice about it. You threw it in the ocean. Oh, one of those, huh? Yes, that's right. I rather thought our honeymoon was our own business. Incidentally, he paid for all the cameras, Mike. I got a sweet letter of apology, too. Oh, always the gentleman, huh? I wouldn't count on that. Now then, uh, what are the plans? The wedding is Saturday. This is Thursday. They should spend tomorrow night as guests of the Lord. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's something screwy here. Now, if he's resigned, why is he doing this? Let... Uh-oh, oh, 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 I get it, mister. Oh, you want to get even with your ex-bride, huh? As one gentleman to another, that may be exactly what I want. I'll have a car pick you up in North Philadelphia tomorrow noon. Good day. Well, what you, well how do you like that? He just walks out on us, just as though we were... Had, was... A handkerchief, Mike. There's a little spit in your eye. It shows. <laughs> Oh, dear, so many things to do in so little time. Tracy, when you finish listing those wedding presents... Mother, how do you spell omelette? Two L's, two M's, one or the other. Omelette? That's a funny wedding present. Dinah, dear, it's an omelette dish. This one... It stinks. Oh, darling, don't say stinks. If necessary, smells, but only if absolutely necessary. Mother, if I ever finish writing down... Oh, this lamp, isn't it awful? Yeah, let me see that card. Oh, yes, friends of your father's. Wouldn't you know? What are they, tap dancers or just musical comedy producers? Tracy, that's hardly fair to your father's interest in the arts. The arts? The art of putting up a fortune to display the shapely legs of some... Tracy, please. Well, I'm certainly glad George isn't like that. Mother, isn't George an angel? George is an angel. Is he handsome or is he not? George is handsome. I like Dexter. Really? Why don't you stop the wedding? How? Get smallpox. Oh, please. Don't give her any ideas, Tracy. Now, Dinah. Gee, Tracy's always so mean about Dexter. Well, darling, he was rather mean to her. Did he really sock her? Dinah. 
Really, Mother, if I don't choke her before Saturday... That'd stop the wedding, wouldn't it? It would not. You're supposed to be riding, young lady. Yes, Dinah, they must be waiting at the stable. All right, all right. Mother. Yes, dear. How do you get smallpox? Oh. Dinah, please go. Oh, I'm going, I'm going. Now then, Tracy, let's get those lists finished. And... Mother. Mother. That whistle. Dexter, Dexter, you're back! Dinah, my dream girl, my own true love. Oh, no, it can't be. He wouldn't dare. Mother, look, he's here. Mother, it's Dexter. Well, hello. Dexter Haven, you go right back where you came from. I can't. Dinah says it's too awful here without me. Redhead, if you don't look in the pink. Much too nice for George. If you think you can walk in here and... Uh, Dexter, tell me, how is Junius? Oh, Junius is fine. Heartbroken, of course, not to be here for the wedding. I suggested representing him as best man, but... Dexter, I appreciate your offer, but I'm afraid George would prefer to have his best man sober. Ah, yes, yes. Well, I'm sure you'll like the people Junius did send. People? The... The junior sent, did you say? Yes, Miss Imbrie and Mr. Connor. They're waiting now in the South Parlor. You really ought to tell them what rooms they're to have. Rooms? Dexter, have you switched from liquor to dope by any chance? Well, it was Junius's idea, you see. They've been terribly nice to him, and when they said they were coming to Philadelphia... And... Dexter Haven, you're lying. I can always tell. Hmm. Can you, Red? Yes, you have a habit of just a minute now. You went to work after the divorce, didn't you? Well, not right after. First, I tested several hundred bottles of bourbon. But after that, after that, you took a job in South, South America. What for? A magazine. Ah, uh, and it wasn't by any chance spy magazine. Oh, you're just a mass of intuition. And I don't suppose Junius's friends are photographers by any chance. Well, not exactly by I chance. I thought you were low, Dex, but I never thought, oh, you... Ah, no, you're slipping red. I used to be afraid of that look, the withering glance of the goddess. I didn't think that alcohol would destroy your last shred of decency so soon. I ought to... Tracy, please... Dinah. Oh, Mother, not yet. Come along, dear. You're late for your ride. But, Mother, maybe he's going to sock her again. Dexter, I'll have no argument about this. I want those people out of here, and you too. Yes, Your Majesty. But first, could I interest you in some small blackmail? No, you... What? Here you are, galley proofs. An article complete with snapshots, details, and insinuations ready for publication in Spy. About your father and that dancer in New York. Father and Tina Mara? But they can't. They can't publish this. It's got to be stopped. Well, it is stopped temporarily, if you'll allow Miss Imbry and Mr. Connor to turn in the story on your wedding. And when Mr. Kidd says story, he means story. I'm going to be sick. Yes, dear. An intimate day with a society bride. I am sick. Too bad. Well, in the South Parlor, Your Majesty. Shall I conduct you in? Don't bother, please. I'm sure I know the way. <laughs> I'm, uh... I'm Tracy Lord, though I suppose you know that, but any friend of Junius's is a friend of... So nice having you with us. We're happy to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure. Too bad Junius couldn't be here. At least one male member of the family, too. Hey, uh, where's your father? Darling, Papa, I do hope you'll stay for my wedding. Yes, we'd like to. Yeah, that was more or less the idea. The house is rather a mess, of course, but we'll try to make you as comfortable as... Oh, what a cunning little camera. Wait, uh, I take pictures with it. <laughs> Well, I hope you'll take loads. Dear Papa and Mama aren't allowing any reporters in, that is, except for little Mr. Grace, who does the social news. Mr. Connor, can you imagine a grown-up man sinking so low? No, it does seem pretty bad. <laughs> You're a sort of a, a writer, aren't you, Mr. Connor? No, sort of. A book? Mm-hmm, yeah. Under what name do you publish? My own, Macaulay Connor. Just try and call me that. <laughs> I won't. What's the Macaulay for? Well, my father taught English history. I'm Mike to my friend. Of whom you have many, I'm sure. 
English history. It's always fascinated me. Cromwell, Robin Hood, Jack the Ripper. Where did he teach? I mean, your father. Well, in a high school in South Bend, Indiana. South Bend. It sounds like dancing, doesn't it? <laughs> and this is, this is your first visit to Philadelphia, a quaint old place, don't you think? Odd customs and such, where the scrapples eat biddle on Sunday. <laughs> but then you're still quite young. Well, I don't know about that. I'm 30. Really? One book isn't much for a man of 30. <laughs> I don't mean to criticize. You probably have other interests outside your work. No, none. Unless, unless... Uh, oh, well. oh, how sweet. <laughs> Are you two going together? Well, sort of. Engaged, I presume. Uh, no, no, but... Uh, but, but very much in love. <laughs> Well, isn't that a little personal? Is it? Well, it's so very interesting, Miss Imbrey. Miss Imbrey, if a man says he loves a girl, don't you think he ought to marry her? Hey, now, just a look. Please, Mr. Connor, uh, I asked Miss Imbrey a question. Well, it depends. I'm disappointed, Miss Imbrey. I've been very frank with you. However, I'll send a butler to show you your rooms. You'll join us, I hope, at the swimming pool. Ah. Wow. That's what I say. Well, Who's just... interviewing whom? Yeah, yeah, just study, old girl. Now, don't let her throw you. You want to take over? Mm, I want to go home. But uh, since I'm on the job, I'll settle for the swimming pool. And then she came out and he wandered in and then, then, then. Oh. Find out. Uh, oh, Mr. Connor. Yeah, you said to come down here. I didn't mean to interrupt your reading. It's nothing important, I hope. I... You bet. It's very important. It's your book. Oh? Oh. Well, I didn't know you had it. Well, I didn't. I sent to the library for it. Oh? Well, you like it? I like it very much. Especially the story called With the Rich and Mighty. I think I like that one best. Really? Well, I, uh, I got the title from a Spanish peasant's proverb, with the rich and mighty, always a little patience. I like that. Tell me something, will you, Connor? When you can write a book like this, how can you possibly do anything else? Well, you'll never believe it, but there are people in this world that have to earn a living. You know. Yeah, of course, but people buy books, don't they? Not if there's a library around. That book re represents two solid years' work, and that had Connor less than... Oh, heck, that's Dexter. Look, stand by, will you, Connor? I don't want to be alone with him. Well, well, there you are. Funny, just where I thought you'd be. Fancy seeing you here. Orange juice? Certainly. Don't tell me you've forsaken your beloved whiskey and whiskies. No, but I think a pale pastel shade would be a better color for me today. And how about you, Mr. Connor? You drink, don't you? Alcohol, I mean. Mm, little. A little? And you a writer? Dexter... Will you do something for me? Anything, Red. What? Crawl into some small hole until after the wedding. Oh, I couldn't do that. At least not until I've... Uh... Connor, don't miss a word. Don't miss a word. We're going to talk about me. Why not? You find the subject fascinating. You're far and away your favorite person in the world. Of course, Mr. Connor, she's generous to a fault. To a fault, Mr. Connor. Except to other people's faults. For instance, to what used to be my deep and gorgeous thirst. It was disgusting. A weakness, sure. And strength is your religion. Well, when I realized I was not expected to be a loving husband and a good companion, but a kind of a high priest to a virgin goddess. Dexter, you... Well, then my drinks grew more frequent and deeper, that's all. Connor, don't you let him make you think why he's gone. <laughs> I like him. Dexter, what are you trying to make me out as? Red, what do you fancy yourself as? 
What are you trying to do with this marriage to George? How can you even think of it? George Kittredge is everything you're not. He's been poor and he's had to work and he's had to fight for everything and I love him as I never even began to love you. Really? Well, you really are in love. Yes, I am, and you needn't sound so contemptuous. I'm not red, never of you. You could be the finest woman in the world if you just learned to have some regard for human frailty. If only you'd slip a little sometime. But I guess that's hopeless. Your sense of inner divinity won't allow that. This goddess must and shall remain intact. <laughs> this woman must represent her class, a special class, the married maidens. So help me, Dexter, if you say another word... I'll... Tracy, darling, you there by the pool? George. That's a new high priest. I'll run along. <laughs> Here, Red, I brought you a little wedding present. Sorry I had no ribbon to tie it up with. So long, Red. A present? Well, I wonder what... Oh. Oh, there you are, my dear. I thought I'd run over and... Tracy, aren't you going to say hello? Yeah, yeah. Hello, George. What's that you've got? Oh, a wedding present from Dex. A photograph? A picture of the true love. The, the what? We sailed her up the coast of Maine and back the summer we were married. My, she was yar. Yar? What's that? It means, oh, easy to handle, quick to the helm, fast, bright. Everything a boat should be until it develops dry rot. Oh, George. Well, there now, he'll not upset you anymore. He never appreciated you anyway. How could he? Anyone as wonderful as you. George. It's what I've always thought from the first time I saw you. You're like some marvelous, distant, oh, queen, I guess. There's kind of beautiful purity about you. George. It's what everyone feels. They worship you, darling. George, listen, I don't want to be worshipped. I want to be loved. Oh, you're that, too. I mean, really loved. Of course. And now I'll have to hurry, darling. Big party tonight, you know. I'll pick you up around now. Well, I, I... Connor. Hey, Connor. Are you around here somewhere? Yeah, here in the dressing room. Are you calling me? Yes, I was. Connor, do you ever take a drink? A drink? Oh, yes, yes, sometimes. Well, that's good. Let's go in and open a bottle of champagne. The second act of the Lady Esther Screen Guild show starring Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, and Jimmy Stewart will follow in a moment. Now, a word from Lady Esther. Have you heard what's new and smart in Easter hats? There are lots of styles to choose from. Adorable little hats made entirely of flowers, perky bowlers with rolled-up brims, bewitching bonnets to frame your face with beauty. But here's the one style note that's most important. The new spring hats are worn back off your forehead. They give the world a good look at your face. Well, now, how about your skin? Will it have a lovely springtime look to show the world? It will if you use my new spring face powder shade called Bridal Pink. Lady Esther Bridal Pink is fashion right for spring and beauty right for you. Now, at last, you don't have to worry about which shade of face powder is right for you. Here, for the first time, is one shade of face powder that's right for four basic types of skin. If you're a blonde, Bridal Pink will dramatize your blondness, make your skin look softer, more alluring. If you're a brunette, Lady Esther Bridal Pink will intensify the contrast, make you look so much more romantic. If you're a brunette, Bridal Pink will give an exciting lift to your whole appearance. And if you're a redhead, Bridal Pink will wake up your skin, 
give it the life and warmth it needs to go with your hair. Buy a box of bridal pink tomorrow. Don't wait for spring. Start now to use this lovelier face powder shade, which makes even a bride look more romantic. And now Lady Esther presents the second act of the Philadelphia story starring Jimmy Stewart, Catherine Hepburn, and Cary Grant. Well, that bottle of champagne was just the first. Later, at the party on a neighboring estate, Tracy and Mike sampled quite a few more until George departed in a huff and left Mike to escort Tracy home. That's where we find them now, just arriving with a bottle they brought along for the road. Well, well, here we are, Professor. You know, it's funny I never noticed this lake before. <laughs> Silly, that's a swimming pool. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> you, know, you know, champagne's tricky. I'm used to bourbon. Bourbon's a slap on the back. Champagne, champagne's a... A heavy mist before my eyes. A quick swim will fix that. Dexter and I always swam after parties. Well, let's forget about Dexter. Have a drink now. Why not? Mike, Mike, do you hear a telephone ringing? I did a little while ago. No, I can't hear it. Well, now. Yes, I do. No. Well, it's very far away. Uh That's my bedroom telephone, and it's probably George. I'd better go in and... No. No, it stopped. Fine. Drink your champagne. Mm-hmm. That's a good idea. <laughs> Hello, you. <laughs> Hello. You look fine. I feel fine. <laughs> Did you like the party? Sure. The prettiest sight in this fine, pretty world. The privileged class enjoying its privilege, privilege, privileges. You. You're a snob, Connor. No doubt. No doubt. Hey, Tracy. Hey, you you can't marry that guy. George, I'm going to. Why not? Well, you don't match up. Professor, you're stepping out of character. My mistake. Oh, don't apologize. Who's apologizing? Really, I never knew such a man. I guess I never knew a girl like you, Tracy. Yeah? Tracy, you're wonderful. There's a magnificence in you. My... A magnificence that comes out of your eyes and in your voice and on the way you stand and the way you walk. There's fires banked down in you, Tracy. Hearth fires and holocausts. I... You, you don't think I'm like a goddess? Your flesh and blood, that's the blank, unholy surprise. But you're... You're the golden girl, Tracy. You're full of life and warmth and delight. Hey. Hey, what goes on? Have you got... Got tears in your eyes. Shut up, shut up. Oh, Mike, Mike, keep talking, keep talking, talk, will you? What good is talk, Tracy? Tracy. Golly. Golly, Moses. Well, nobody's ever kissed me like that. Tracy, I want to tell you something. Please, all of a sudden I've got the shakes. Please, Tracy. It's as though my insteps were melting away. Oh, gee, what is it? Have I got feet of clay or something? Tracy, you're so lovely. Wait, I know. The pool, there's a moon and it's warm and we could... Now? Now. Mike, Mike, put me in your pocket and let's go swimming. 
Yes, but darling, my love, are you sure it wasn't just a dream? Well, I can't be positive, but... Good morning. Well, what ho, the bride. In her wedding dress. Such a lovely day. <laughs> Is everybody fine? That's fine. Hmm. How fine are you? Well, I, don't, I don't know what's the matter with me. I can hardly open my eyes. I must have had too much sun yesterday. Um, it's awfully easy to get too much. Tracy, you're not really going to, are you? Going to what? Mary George, after last night. Last night? What are you talking about? Tracy, don't you even remember? Remember what? Well, I've been telling Dinah it was just a dream. A dream? Well, what kind of a dream? Well, last night, it was awful late, I guess. I woke up and looked out of my window, and guess what I saw? What? Mr. Connor. Mike? Uh-huh. He was sort of coming from the pool with both arms full of something. And what do you think it turned out to be? What? You and some clothes. And you were sort of crooning. I never crooned in my life. <laughs> then what? Well, then he carried you into the house, and I could hear him take you into your room. Mike and me? Well, I'm going crazy. I'm standing here on my own two hands and going crazy. What else? Well, after that, he... Uh, uh, good morning, everybody. Oh, well, morning, Connor. How do you feel? Hmm? Well, Mike, I... Mike, what's happened to your chin? My chin? Oh, well, you see... Tracy, I... I didn't get to tell you. When Mr. Connor came out again, George was waiting for him. No. Yes. And Mr. Connor sort of got hit on the chin. George? No, me. You, Dex, you were there, too? Good grief, why didn't you sell tickets? <laughs> I... I'll say Dexter was there. What a clip he gave me. Oh, well, I'm sorry, Mike. I thought I'd better hit you before George did. He's in better shape than I am. Dex, Mike, will somebody please tell me what happened before I go start raving mad? On the level, you don't know? Of course I don't know. I don't remember anything. Ah, lucky Tracy. She's drawn a blank. Shut up, Dex. Mike, you tell me. Well, Tracy, yes. Tracy, are you ready, darling? The guests are all here and the bishop's waiting. And... Oh, dear, where is George? <gasps> George. Good heavens, Tracy, I forgot he was here at ten and left this note. For me? Well, I wonder what he could have... Well, go on, read it out loud, Red. We're all friends. Yes, I will. Listen to this. Quote, Your conduct last night was so shocking to my ideals of womanhood that my attitude toward you and the prospects of a happy and useful life together... Tracy? Hello, George. Tracy, I didn't dream you. All these people... Why, it's only a letter from a friend. They're my friends, too. I, uh... I thought I ought to come and, uh, and explain. I mean, I... It's clear it... enough, George. You're chucking me over in good riddance. Well, after all, I have a point, you know, on the very eve of your marriage. Well, to... just a minute, George. Mike, why don't you tell him what happened last night? Well, exactly two kisses and one late swim, after which I deposited Tracy in her room and I left. You mean, you mean to say that's all there was to it? I do. Why? Was I so terribly unattractive, Mike? So distant, so forbidding that you... No, no, you were extremely attractive and far from distant or forbidding. But you were also, uh, you well... You were pretty pixelated, Red. Yeah. And, and there are rules about that. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. I think men are wonderful. Oh, well... Uh... Tracy, uh, uh, perhaps I was a little hasty, but, well, a man does expect his wife to... To behave herself naturally. To behave herself naturally. 
Will you please? Well, I'm sorry. Tracy, if if you're willing to let bygones be bygones, uh, what do you say? Goodbye, George. I beg your pardon? I said goodbye. But, but we you have You see, to... you're much too good for me, George. A hundred times too good. And I make you most unhappy, most. Very well. That's how you want it. Possibly it's just as well. Good day. Well, congratulations, Red. Or is that proper without a groom? Hey, we can make it proper, Tracy. Yeah, Mike? I got you into this. I'll get you out of it. Will you marry me, Tracy? No, Mike. Thank you, but... No. Why not? Because I, I don't think that nice girl with a camera would like it, and I'm not sure that you would, and I'm even a little doubtful about myself. Well, there goes your wedding music, Tracy. And besides, I, I made a mistake yesterday. I opened a wedding present too soon. Present without any ribbons on it. Red. Just a picture of a boat. Boat I don't think I've ever forgotten. Red. I've got an old wedding license, the one we didn't use when we eloped. What do you say? Dex, Dex, are you sure? Not in the least, but I'll risk it, will you? And, and, and you, you wouldn't be doing it just to save my face? Why shouldn't I save it? It's a nice little face. <gasps> oh, Dex, I'll be yah this time. I promise, darling, I'll be yah. Be whatever you like. You're my redhead. Are you all set? All set. Oh, never have I been so full of love. Mike, how do I look? Like a queen, like a goddess. That's funny, Mike, because you know how I feel. For the first time in my life, like a human being. Thank you, Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant, and Catherine Hepburn for a most delightful half hour. Well, as a matter of fact, Mr. Bradley, there isn't an actor or actress in Hollywood who isn't eager to come here and take part in the great work this program does for the Motion Picture Relief Fund and its country house. Am I right, boys? You are right, That's Kate. Fine. Say that again. This is the man in black, here for Roma Wines to introduce this weekly half hour of Suspense. Tonight in Hollywood, we are honored and happy to have with us one of the entertainment world's most distinguished gentlemen, Mr. Cary Grant. The suspense play which stars Cary Grant and which is produced and directed by William Spear, is the exciting and tense bestseller by Cornell Woolrich called The Black Curtain. Suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series, Roma brings you tales calculated to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so, with The Black Curtain... And with the performance of Cary Grant, we again hope to keep you in suspense. It began, or rather life began again for me, I guess you'd say, that day, on that street. My head was pounding terribly. I could hear all the noise and the people milling around. Everything was a jumble at first. All right. Hang right there now. That's the doctor. I see that happen with the policeman. He was running. Boy, he really gave himself a clunk on the beat. All right, son. Now get back there. Everybody back. Oh, oh my head. His wallet fell out of his pocket, and a big boy grabbed it and ran away. He All right, up. now. Back, everybody. Let the doctor through. Get him out of here. I'm okay. No, never mind, Doc. I'm okay. Seems to be not much the matter with you, sir. 
Yeah, I'm all right. I guess I can talk to him now, Doc. I'll go ahead, officer. Just a bad bump on the head, I think. That's right. We can walk all right, can't you? Yeah, I think so. Ah, sure. Here, now let me brush you on. Huh? Thanks, thanks. Well, I'll be fine. Hey. hey, wait a minute. What am I doing with an overcoat? All now? right now, mister. Just so they got it on the blotter. What's your name? Where do you live? Uh, Townsend. Frank Townsend. 820 Rutherford Street. I want a cigarette. You're still shaking. No, no, thanks. I don't smoke. Well, while we're getting back then, drop in at the receiving hospital if you want us to check you off. Huh? Yeah, I will. Hey, here's your hat, mister. I found it. Oh, thanks, That's kid. all. Now, come on. Move along. Guy's all right. Come on. Oh, well, thanks. I'm sorry about the fellow that got your wallet. Anyway, here's your cigar case, Mr. Townsend. Guy found it right alongside of you. Hey, wait a minute. This isn't my hat. D.N. Those aren't my initials, D.N. Sure, that's your hat. I seen it roll off you when you went down. Play it on. You see? It fits. Looks good. Yeah. But, but what am I doing with a cigar case? D.N. Same initials as the hat. Uh, don't you even know your own hat, mister? Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm trying to think. Where is this? What? This street. You're on Tillery Street. Tillery Street? What am I doing on Tillery Street? <laughs> All right, now, sir. My suggestion is that you go on home and go lie down. It's cold and starting to snow. No, no, please, wait a minute. Don't leave me. Tell me. What happened? Why, you slipped on this icy sidewalk. Fell down and hit your head good and hard on the curb. You're out for about 20 minutes and then you... Ice on a sidewalk? Well, look at it. That street cleaning department ought to clear away the snow there, too. Snow and ice? Sure, why? Snow? In July? July? Oh, it's December. December 1943. 1943? Uh, you better go on home, son. Good night. 1943. December 1943. <laughs> the last I remember was July 1940. Three years just gone. Amnesia. Black curtain comes down over your mind. That black curtain had been over mine for three years. Where had I been? Who had I been? I hadn't been Frank Townsend. I'd been someone else. D.N. Someone whose initials were D.N. I walked along Tillery Street thinking about it those three years. I could have been married. I could have been a thief. I could have... Something made me turn around on the street for a moment. That was when I first saw him. Gray eyes. He'd been talking to the cop who took my name. He looked up as I did. And then he started to walk rapidly in my direction. I backed away instinctively. Something about him spelled trouble. He called to me as he hey, came forward. Hey, you stop! Townsend! Instinctively, I knew I should run and get away from him. Hey! You. I looked back as I rounded the corner. He had a gun in his hand. He raised it. And I turned back from the light. <laughs> What lay behind that black curtain which separated Townsend from his past? With this remarkable story, and with Hollywood's distinguished Cary Grant as our star, the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California, tonight assumes the sponsorship of Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills. This is the dinner hour at an exclusive yacht club in Latin America. 
and we discreetly eavesdrop on that gentleman and his lady there at the table. This has been a lovely dinner, Ramon, and only you would have thought to have such a delicious wine as the finale. It was so perfect. Is it truly a wine from California in North America? Yes, see? This is the noted Roma port of California in the United States. We were fortunate to have it tonight, for now, in time of war, on the occasional ship can bring us the Roma wine. I knew that you would... Fortunate? Yes. For Roma wines please the exacting tastes of wine lovers in many countries. And we in the United States are most fortunate of all. For we can enjoy any of those delicious wines from the famous Roma wineries located in choice wine districts throughout California at prices unbelievably small for wines of such distinguished character. Because we do not have to pay heavy shipping costs and duty, here at home in America, Roma wines cost only a few cents a glass. What's more, you will find Roma California wines just around the corner at your favorite dealers. Right there, waiting for you now, the types of Roma wines you most enjoy. So if you haven't yet discovered the delight of Roma wine regularly with meals or when entertaining friends, make your first purchases of Roma tomorrow. R-O-M-A, Roma, America's largest selling wine. Made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. And now it is with pleasure that we bring back to our soundstage Mr. Kerry Grant and the Black Curtain, a story well calculated to keep you in suspense. Why was he following me? With a gun. What did Gray Eyes want with me? I must have done something. I beat it down the subway and hid. I had to think it all out carefully. I knew I was on the spot for something. Gray Eyes meant business. What could it be? Who had I been? During those last three years with that black curtain in front of them. Well, maybe I'd been a gangster. And he was one of a mob that wanted to rub me out. I didn't know. No identification, my wallet stolen. Nothing in my pockets that would help. Just D.N. in the hat. And D.N. on the cigar case. D.N. My head was aching with worry. My stomach had panic in it. I had to find out who I'd been, what I'd done. But how? Where? Tillery Street. That's where I'd been when I woke up. Tillery Street. Well, maybe Gray Eyes would go back there, too, looking for me. But I had to take that chance. Tillery Street. Yes? Oh, good evening, Pop. Oh, oh, hello there. Couldn't see you under that hat at first. Oh, you, you know me? Sure. What can I get you, son? Oh, well, uh, you got an evening paper I could look at? Nope. Sorry, never read them. Too much trouble in the world these days, anyhow. Yeah. See, how you been? You haven't been around two or three weeks. Oh, well, I've been kind of busy. Uh, look, Pop. Yeah? I made a bet with a guy that even though you see so many customers, you'd walk right up and give me my full name. Oh. Well, I'm sorry. I don't know it. I don't think I ever heard your name. Oh. But I know your girl. My girl? Uh-huh. You do, huh? Yeah. Well, now, maybe I can still win my bet if you'll give me her name. Gee, uh... I've heard you mention it. I, I'd know it if I heard it. You are? Well, uh, see if I can steer you a little. Now, is it Mary? No. Nope. Uh, Alice? Lillian? Ah, uh, Margaret. Huh? No. 
Wait a minute. Wait. I know. Ruth. That's it, Ruth. Ruth? Yeah. Well, sure, you got it. Now, now, what's Ruth's last name? Gee, I don't know her la- I know where she lives, though. You do? Yeah, right across the street. The Tillery Apartments. Well, that's right. Ah, uh-uh. but now, now, what apartment? What's the number of Ruth's apartment? Mm, 3C. Apartment 3C. <laughs> say, that's pretty good if I do say so. I was only there once, remember? The night I brought the sandwiches yeah, over. Yeah. I... Well, uh, thanks. Uh, will you win your bet, mister? Huh? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I think I will. Uh, what's your name so I'll know it next time? Oh, I'll tell you tomorrow. I hope. So long. So long, Pop. Thank you. I'll be... What's the matter? Nothing. Nothing. I just tying my shoe. I'd just been going to walk out when I saw him standing across the street, gray eyes again. I ducked down behind the store window and watched him. He looked over in my direction and then up and down the street. Oh, then he lit a cigarette and stole down the corner. The minute he disappeared, I yanked the door open, dashed out, ran across the Tillery apartments and went in. right now, for all you know. Who? Oh, well, Fiery, of course. Uh, has he got gray eyes? What? Yeah. Did you ever see a detective that didn't? Oh, I see. Sure, sure. Danny, what's the matter with you? You're acting so strangely. Well, I... I just want to look at you. You seem so different, so far away. You haven't kissed me. Well, that's easily fixed. Oh, darling, where have you been for three weeks? All around. Miss me? You know I did. Oh, Danny, do you suppose... Do you think we could get away tonight? I've got $3,000 saved up. We could go to Mexico or South America. We could get married. Mr. and Mrs. Daniel Neering, tour of the world. Daniel Neering? Yeah, and wife. Sounds plenty good to me. Oh, you'll never know how good. We'll get out of here tonight. I'll call up and tell them I'm quitting my job. I'll say I'm sick. All my stuff's here. Nothing's out there but a couple of uniforms. <laughs> I'll make Alma and Franklin a present of those. Alma and Franklin? Don't you bother your pretty head about those two charmers. Maybe they weren't glad when it happened. A couple of vultures. Bye-bye to them. Oh, with you back, Danny. Just think with my three thousand we can... <laughs> do, you, do you think you ought to quit your job? Absolutely, I think so. <laughs> I was never cut out to be a nurse anyway. <laughs> I guess you weren't. Any more than uh, I was cut out. Any more than you were meant to be a secretary. Ah, that's right. <laughs> well, I never wanted to be a secretary. Just drifted into it, I guess. Kind of got on my nerves, especially toward the end. You know, the uh, the boss was no cinch to work for. He certainly wasn't. He was a rat. Oh, the whole deeply bunch are mean, rotten, the whole family. Yeah, that's right. All except the old man. Uh, oh, yeah, the old man. I... I I sort of liked him, didn't I? And he loves you, Danny. I think he wished you'd been his son. Poor old man. He's the only reason I've stuck around out there this long. How are things out there? Oh, they've been questioning all of us. They've laid off lately, though, since you... Oh, Danny, don't let's talk anymore about it. You're back. That's the main thing. I just want to forget New Jericho and the whole... New Jericho, huh? Yes. Oh, Danny. 
only it hadn't happened. What hadn't? You know what? Oh, Danny, what's going to become of you and me? I wish I knew. Danny, get away from that window. Leave that shade down. He's down there. Who? Gray eyes. He's standing in front of the hydrant. He's coming in here, in the building. Oh, did he see you? Ruth, will you help me? What are you going to do? I'm going to give myself up. No, no. Well, it's better than getting shot at. What can they do to me? You crazy fools, they can send you to the chair. The chair? Well, what do you think happens to a man when he's guilty of murder? Murder? Ruth, listen to me. I'm not a murderer. If the whole world says I committed murder, I say I didn't. The me that's in me says I didn't. I never said you were, Danny. I always said you didn't do it. Oh, if you hadn't run away. So that's it. All right, Mary. Open up. You come here, Danny. Why? We've got to get out of here. How about the fire escape shaft? Dumb waiter. Dumb waiter. Here. All right, get in. I'll stand on top and work the ropes. I don't think it can hold us both. Got you. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, Danny. Danny, what will we do? We're going back there to New Jericho. New Jericho? No, Danny, don't. Please, for me. Got you. I've got to find out. We're going together. No. No, Danny, no. I've got the money. We can get out of here and we... Stop it. Danny, ouch. My arm. You're hurting me. From here on in, we're sticking together. They're going to take me back there. Back where it happened. All right, darling. Crazy, but I'll go wherever you go. I can't lose you again. On the train, Ruth and I said very little to each other. While I hid in the telephone booth at the Pennsylvania station, she bought us a couple of cheap overcoats. I sat hunched up in mine, thinking, thinking. Ruth had brought along the newspaper clippings. I looked at what they said for the 20th time, trying to see if there was anything there that would help me. Dietrich Slayer's salt, it said. Secretary wanted in brutal slaying at suburban estate. Police are pressing the search for Daniel Nearing, secretary in the employ of the late John Dietrich, 58, member of a well-known local family who was shot and killed in the drawing room of his new Jericho estate on the morning of November the 7th. Nearing disappeared November the 7th, on the morning of which date he is known to have had a bitter quarrel with the disease. This last was attested to at the inquest by Alma and Franklin Dietrich, widow and brother of the murdered man. Well, I had all the facts now. <laughs> Wanted for murder. And yet everything that was in me told me that no matter who I'd been, however many memories I'd lost, that I was no killer, that I couldn't have. I had to get into that Dietrich house and stand again in the room in which it had all happened. Maybe something would come back to me. Maybe there would be... down to the village. Did they say anything about you being out here on your day off? Yeah. Alma said something, but I said I had nothing to do in town. He came out to write some letters. Well, let's go then. Oh, Danny, I'm scared. Please, let's not no, stay no, out you here. You said you loved me. I do, Danny, I do. That's why I'm scared. They're only going to the village. They'll be back in half an hour at the most. Come on, open the door, Ruth. Hurry. I've got to see the inside, that room, the place where it happened. Wrong, Danny. I'm telling you, you're wrong. You're fine. Now, open the door, Ruth. Quick. 
quickly. All right. Now, let's have a look at that room. Please, Danny, please don't. Don't talk about it. So this is where I'm supposed to have murdered John Dietrich, huh? Danny, please. Where was it? Show me exactly where it was, Ruth. I've got to know. It was there. Right there. He was standing by the grandfather's clock when... Oh, you go crazy, Danny. If they get you, you'll hang. By the clock. You still believe in me, don't you, Ruth? I believe you, Danny, but I'm scared. I love you. What's that? Listen. Don't the old man. He's asleep in that room off there. Don't go in there, Danny. You'll wake him. I want to see him. No. No, don't, Danny. He can't help you. You know he's paralyzed and he can't talk. Turn on the light. I want to see him. There, you woke him. It's me, Mr. Dietrich. Yes. Ruth. Uh, this is Danny. You remember Danny, don't you? Hello, Mr. Dietrich. See how his eyes are shining? Yeah. Was he here when it happened? You know that, Danny. Why do you ask such funny questions? He's been in bed here for five years. That mirror! On the wall there! The clock! Look! You can see the grandfather's clock in the other room. What are you getting at, Danny? He could see it! The old man could see the murder through the mirror! Oh, if only he could talk! He can't talk! You scare me, Danny! He saw the man who killed John Dietrich. Look! Look! He understands what I'm saying. He's blinking his eyes. Oh, stop torturing him, Danny. Can't you see what you're doing? He's trying to say something. Look. Look. His eyes are blinking. He's going to help me. Go outside and watch, Ruth. Go on. Now watch out at the entrance way. Be careful, Danny. Please, they'll be back any minute. All right, leave me alone with him. I'll call if I hear them coming. Look now, Mr. Dietrich. Don't be afraid. I'm going to ask you a question, and you're going to answer me. Are you trying to tell me something about the murder? Now, blink your eyes. Blink twice if you are. And that's it. Once. Twice. That's good. Did you see it happen? Here, in your mirror. Blink once if the answer is no. Twice if the answer is yes. Once. Twice. You did, huh? You saw it. Now then. Is the murderer in this house? Danny. Danny, they're coming. Craig and Get out of here. Hide. Run, Danny, run. Is the murderer in this house? Blink once for no, twice for yes. Yes, in this house. Danny, Danny, they're coming. Wait, wait, I've almost got it. Now, Mr. Dietrich, was it me? Once for no, twice for yes. Was it me? Get out of here, Danny, into the big room. behind the curtain. I'll talk to you. All right, all right. Thanks, Mr. Dietrich. I'll be back. Ruth? Ruth, is that you in Father's room? Yes. Are you here alone? Oh, yes. Why? Well, we thought we heard voices. What are you so jittery about, Ruth? I'm just tired, that's all. May I go to bed now? Father's still awake, Ruth. He'll go to sleep, all right. I'm going upstairs, Mrs. Dietrich, now. Good night, Ruth. And uh, take your flashlight with you. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. It was dark on the road tonight. Good night, Ruth. Good night. She's brought him back here with her. Him, I think. Who? Dan? Oh, Franklin. Take it easy. If he's here, we'll get him. After the evidence we gave against him at the hearing, I... Oh, I'm frightened. Just get out of here fast. I'll go to the village for the police. Call the police. No, I'll do it. Hello? Hello? It's too late. It's dead. The wire is cut. Come on, we'll both drive to the village. Eh? But he may be waiting for us out by the car. Uh-uh. Oh. What? Yeah. 
What are you doing there, Franklin? I think I just might need my gun. Come along. They left the house. I made for the old man's room. I called for Ruth, but she was gone. Maybe Franklin and Elma had caught her after she cut the telephone wire, but I couldn't wait. My life was hanging on minutes now. I shot the flashlight on the old man's face. Now, Mr. Dietrich, you're helping me fine. You know I'm trying to save my life, don't you? Now, the murderer. Was it me? Was it me who did it? Me, Danny Nearing. Blink once for no... Once. Once. Oh, you're sure. You're sure it wasn't me. Oh, you're smiling, Mr. Dietrich. Smiling. Now, it was somebody in this house. Then who was it? Oh, can't you make a sound? Help me, you've got to. Was it Elma? Twice for yes, once for no. Once. Not Elma. All right, then. Was it Franklin? Up with the hands, Mary. Up or you'll never go to trial. Franklin. Look, you've got to listen. You've got to. Shut up and drop that flashlight. Trying to kill the old man, too, huh? The murderer returns to the scene of his crime, huh? You know I didn't kill him. Well, you tell that to the police. Alma will have me in a couple of minutes. Where's your girlfriend, Ruth? She's not here. I don't know where she went. Never mind. They'll find her. You're a dead duck, Neary. You killed my brother and beat it. What'd you get out of it? That's always puzzled us. You killed your brother. And now you're going to kill me. Oh, you've gone nuts, too. Why should I kill my own brother, you idiot? To get his share of the estate and his wife, Alma, amongst other things. But you can't stop with killing me. Someone else knows the truth. The old man saw it in the mirror. Huh? You'll have to kill your own father, too. The old man saw it? How, how do you know? He told me. Oh, you're lying. He can't talk. He can't even move. He can hear. And he can blink his eyes. Come over here and look. Now, look here. I don't... Rolf! He'll be all right. I heard him. He was going to kill you. Here's the gun, Danny. Take it. But Rose, you shouldn't have. In another minute, I... I'm not sure it was, Franklin. Oh, Danny, please, let's run for it. You'll be here in a second. It's your last chance. I'll swear you did it. Not if I can be with the old man another half minute. Mr. Dietrich. Mr. Dietrich. It's Danny again. No, Danny, don't. Don't. What? Tell me, Mr. Dietrich. Was it Franklin? Did Franklin kill your son, John? Think once if he did. He's afraid. Why are you afraid? Oh. Oh, it's this gun. Here. Take the gun, Ruth. You take it. He's afraid. I'm not going to hurt you, Mr. Dietrich. What's the matter? Why don't you answer me? Who killed John Dietrich? It wasn't me. It wasn't Elmer. It wasn't Franklin. But someone in the house. Was it? Ruth! I told you not to come. Oh, I love you, Danny. I wanted you. I wouldn't have let them get you. Why? Why, Ruth? Why did you kill him? He was always after me. He wouldn't leave me alone. I hated him. Then that night he came back and threatened me. Said he'd kill me. If he couldn't have me, nobody could. He had a gun. and I got it away from him. He hit the clock. He leaned against it. Oh, he'd never fall down and die. It was the day you ran away, and I was crazy. They thought it was you. They started looking. I love you, Danny. I still love you. I begged you not to come back here. Ruth! Put down that gun, Ruth. No. Stand back, Danny. Stay over there. 
just want to look at you. I was hoping we could get away together. But you've been through enough, Danny. And all because of me. Now you're clear, Danny. And this is going to clear me. Darling. Oh, Ruth. Ruth! Sometimes when it gets toward evening, I go and walk along Tillery Street. <laughs> Once in a while, somebody, somebody I don't know, will say, hello, Danny. And I just say hello and walk on. <laughs> I don't want to find out anything anymore. I want it all to die away and be still. And it will. All except Ruth. Because somewhere behind that black curtain, I was loved and loved someone. We must have known a love that I'll never know again. And so closes The Black Curtain, starring Mr. Cary Grant. Tonight's tale of suspense. Superb. That was a double dose of Cary Grant in the Philadelphia story for the Screen Guild Theatre, followed by the Black Curtain for suspense. And remember, if you want to hear Cary's life story, it's available now by subscribing to The Secret History of Hollywood, wherever you get your podcasts. Just time to find out who the hell that Hollywood legend was. <laughs> Could you be Anthony Francioso? <laughs> That's ten down and no more to go. You may unmask panel and say hello and happy new year to Mickey Rooney. It was Andy Hardy himself, Mr. Mickey Rooney. Did you get it? Of course you did. Remember that there are over a hundred bonus episodes of Attaboy Clarence, along with dozens more review shows, lots more radio, an entire classic movie library of treasures for you to watch, 11 complete series of The Secret History of Hollywood, and a weekly film club night, all available now and instantly accessible. Coming up on Patreon too, we're organizing some exciting things, such as another film festival, some Halloween treats, a full program of Christmas movies and feel-good stuff for December. Plus, if you're an aspiring actor, then coming soon, a chance to have some fun with some read-along radio playgroups. All you have to do is go on over to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or click the link in the show notes of this episode. That's it from me. My thanks to Scott for his wise words and my thanks to you for listening. Be well, take very special care of yourselves and I will see you very soon indeed. Bye for now. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. 
So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.